Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to another extra special edition of Thrush and Treasure, the torture chamber musical comedy podcast that loves to assess polar opposite genres of music. And speaking of asses, I'm Aaron and I'm joined as usual by the main man of metal, my co-host with the yummy toast. Oh, it's the captain of Team Metal, Evan. <laughs> oh, that was that's got to be one of your worst puns. That's that is up there. I've done co-host with the most, <laughs> co-host on a different co-host, and a oh. co-host from a different show host. And I thought you're a baker, so now I've done with the yummy toast. So look out! They're all equally terrible. Thank you. That's really, that's legitimately the nicest <laughs> thing you have ever said to me. As yourself. Tired and still in lockdown. What have you been up to? I have been diving, deep diving into the world of deep buttoned diamond pleating. Deep buttoned diamond pleating. Now I know yep. what pleating is in a skirt, like a netball skirt. It's, um, you know, that, that really nice diamond pattern you get on, fancy leather chairs, um, you know, usually expensive furniture. They have this diamond pleating pattern that they do. And I've had to learn how to do it. Are they diamonds or are they plastic? <laughs> no, the metal buttons that I have to cover. I'm, it's upholstery. Okay. But anyways, guess what? <laughs> what? We have another Hollywood diva in the studio today. A guest we've been waiting 65 million years for. Today's extra amazing guest has been described as sitcom Viagra with stimulatingly funny shows such as Sports Night, Roseanne, Grease Under Fire, Schooled, as well as many, many more notches under his resume belt. And much like us all, spent one time in his youth wrapping his fingers around Herman's head, plus his autobiographical take on the genre with his self-narrated series, The Kids Are All Right. Oh, yay, I love The Who. Wait, no, that was about his childhood. And speaking of which, he was also a writer and producer and one-time voice actor on one of my all-time favourite shows, Dinosaurs. But today, he's here to pick the bones off some heavy metal. It is my absolute honour to welcome to the show the man who penned some disturbing behaviour in 87's Zombie High before making his acting debut in the long-forgotten blockbuster gay drama The Natural History of Parking Lots as the all-important character named Teacher, and yet he is an artist so incredibly talented that his resume could create, then destroy the Earth. From the Big Bang Theory came dinosaurs. Thereafter, the straight white man, which led to the last man standing, and that was Andy Richter, who controls the universe. So before we go extinct, let's chuck a huge g'day across the Pacific Ocean to Mr. Tim Doyle. Goodness gracious me. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. I, I'm uh, flabbergasted and 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 feeling very old now that you've uh, laid out my resume like that. Uh, it's uh, I, I'm quite an accomplished uh, television writer. You are. That was a small chunk. Yeah, just a small sample. Yeah, I would ask you, do you ever find time to sit down? But you're a writer. That's all you ever do. So do you ever find time to stand up and walk around? Yes. You do. Okay. Very yes, I try good. to make the time now, especially since the quarantine. So I was just about to ask about that because obviously both our countries are up shit creek at the moment without much of a paddle. 
Um, in television, for those at home, there's a in sitcoms, there's an, an expression called a bottle episode, which is a money saving technique. Really, it will be an episode taking place in one location uh, with just the main cast. But would you say that 2020, 2021 has been the bottle episode of years? for us. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. we've been, uh, and I think just like most bottle episodes, people will be, uh, where people were disappointed by the experience. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not as, it's not as much fun as you want it to be. No, no, I think the, the, mo the last good one I could remember was probably Friends from 20 something years ago when they Ross is running late. Yeah, it's a it's a contrivance on sitcoms that um, you know if you've got really good characters and there's then there's some fun conflict that could be played you know just between them. But um, I, I don't know, especially these days, sitcoms are so much more paced and to have so much more plot and so much more going on and they're more cinematic. I mean, in the old days with the multicam sitcoms, it was you know they, they were more like a little stage play anyway but yeah. uh, with most of what is on tv now which feel has the feel more of like an independent movie i think you know locking two people in a room and uh, having them talk for 20 minutes uh you know isn't isn't uh, that exciting yeah reminds me that's uh the seinfeld episode where the the entire episode takes place uh waiting for a table yeah at the chinese restaurant right yeah, yeah. That's classic though, as well. Yeah, it's classic. well, believe yeah. me, I, it, it's been it's been well done, and I've been involved in some episodes that I thought were pretty good. But it's it, it, it's a constraint, like all the constraints when you're putting on a show. You know, you can use it to its advantage. You can find the pluses in it. You know, but I would hate to do one every week. I would hate to have to do a show. You know, that was that was stuck in you know in one spot every week. Yeah, there's so many like that. That being said, you look at an old show like you know, like All in the Family or something like that. And 99% yeah. of that show took place in the living room with yeah. the flat shot of him sitting in the chair. And, you know, maybe they moved over to the, the dinner table, you know, but, all, you know, uh, once in a while they went out to the kitchen and, yeah. and, you know, but, you know, very rarely they went up to their bedrooms or, you know, or to somebody's workplace or anything. You know, that show, you know, was a little kitchen sink show that, took place, you know, in, in, in a very confined space and worked beautifully because the characters were so well sketched. Yeah. So when the, the studio or the network comes to you and says, we need a bottle episode, how much do you cringe up inside? You know, it's one of those things where you like, you, you have, you always, when you're doing art of any kind, yeah. you're always working up against limitations, you yeah. know, whether it's budget limitations or an actor that is good at one thing, but isn't good at something else, or, you know, uh, I mean, and, you, and all the time you get notes on a project and they say, oh, this is too expensive. You can't do this scene that takes place, you know, at the ocean. You know, you can't do this scene that takes place in the car while they're driving. We can't afford that. And you suddenly have to turn it into a scene that takes place with two people sitting in a room talking, you know, and it's not it's not always ideal, you know, because there's more energy and more. Um, I mean, part of entertainment is spectacle you know, is showing people something interesting to look at. So you kind of shortchanging the audience a little bit yeah. uh, when you, you know, when you do, when you uh, limit the, the visual element of a show. Just to save the producers some money. Which has always been my least, you know, a very low priority for me in the work I do. Yes, I, I, I can tell. Yeah, and it always, it always feels like a, you know, a compromise. In, in what ways do they differ when you're developing that sort of story? Is it a relief? To, to get something that you don't need to, you know, think of other locations or is it, does it pose more of a challenge? Uh, I mean, I find that, yeah, I don't like to be restricted 
in that way. I mean, it's the kind of thing yeah. that people that that studios or or networks, but studios will mostly press you to do for economy. And um, you know, I would rather compromise with them on other things rather than just say, you know, the characters are stuck in an elevator, and yeah. and we have to do thirty minutes like that. Unless it's really a creative turn on it. I mean, I think when people started doing those, there were clever episodes where, oh, you know, we're going to be in an elevator for for most of the episode or all of the episode, or people are going to be locked in the basement or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. There was a memorable one on All in the Family that was like that, and, you know, uh, and those things have all, had all been done. So uh, I would much rather have the opportunity to give the, give the viewer, a, you know, a, a more kinetic experience, a bigger experience, you know, than, yeah. uh, than just have two people in a room talking. Mm -hmm. Well, you've come to the right place for people talking. Well, it's much more of a phenomenon of like multi-camera shows than it would be like on a single camera show. But, but again, you know, yeah. when, you know, but you're, you're approached all the time and they say you've used up your budget for, um, you know, for location shooting or you're, you've got to cut back on the number of sets or you can have fewer actors or whatever. I mean, there's always yeah. these sort of compromises made, but uh, I, don't, I don't like making them. I, and mm -hmm. I, I don't like I'm arm twisted to do it, but yeah. But I'm a, kind of a grouch that way when it comes to uh, money stuff. Uh, one of the things that pisses me off so much about about TV is, you know, you uh, you and, and this applies to shows that I've worked on and just shows that I watch. It's like you'll see the pilot and they clearly spent ten million dollars on this pilot. It looks fantastic. It, it looks like a, a big budget film. And then episode two, the you know, they have uh, four million dollars to spend on episode two or two million dollars to spend on episode two. And suddenly all, you know, all that scope and uh, the, you know, the stunts and the, and the spectacle and the and the cast of thousands and stuff that, that you that you had in the pilot, that's all gone. And you've got two people in a room talking mm -hmm. and um, you know, and I think that a lot of the time that, that's a bait and switch on the audience that the audience doesn't appreciate. Yeah. But I, I, I would, mm. you know, if, if, as an experiment, look at almost any show, uh, you know, from a pilot to um, to its first and second, third episode, and you see a, you, you see an immediate scaling down where they go from the lavish bu uh, budget of the pilot to the much uh, much more uh, managed budget, uh, pattern budget that they have when they're doing the episodes. Not not as much like on HBO or or Netflix now, yeah. but this is definitely a phenomenon yeah. of network television. Yeah. No, I think that's why I appreciated Lost so much because whilst it did have some smaller episodes, the grandeur was there all the way through. The ensemble cast was there all the way through. Yeah, but but it was largely a cast of unknowns. I mean, the people on that yeah, show, true. there were no fat <laughs> salaries on that show. They weren't. No. They, it, it wasn't Lost, you know, um, you know, starring uh, Courtney Cox, you know, or whatever. You know, it. Uh, uh, so they probably got all those people pretty cheap. Yeah, and so you know having having 10 or 12 uh, principles, you know, in a, in a show, in a series like that, isn't that bad as long as the people aren't expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I guess Michael Keaton quit when he found out that Jack was going to stay alive because he signed up for the pilot when they were going to kill Jack off. No, that's funny. Yeah. When, when they decided to keep him because he was, you know, the leading Lothario character, he, yeah, he quit and Matthew Fox got the part. So, right. So one much cheaper. Yeah. Really good because yeah, I mean the show probably wouldn't have gone as long. They, they couldn't afford that guy. No, I, I certainly find I have more uh, watching loyalty to a show that starts with complete unknowns, and you've got you know characters that you can fall in love with, you know, follow their journey as they go on. Yeah, and you don't have a lot of history with them. This this guy yeah. didn't play Ponzi on Happy Days. Yeah, you're not constantly going. That's just Ross from Friends. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's Ross.
No, that, that's absolutely true. But, but of course, you know, why do we have stars in movies or in TV? You have stars because mm. it, you know, it gives you that opening weekend. It gives you that, that first blush of interest in, this, in the project. Yeah. And network TV or not, I mean, television in general is becoming more like the movies in that respect. That, um, you know, there's so many options out there for what to watch. Um, I mean, your favorite show, and, and this doesn't just apply because you're in Australia, but I mean, I always think about this with people I know here in, in LA. Your favorite show is probably a show I've never heard of, or, ne or maybe I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. You know, everyone's uh, television has become so... Um, you know, uh, so be, so personal. It, ha it isn't the communal experience it once was when a show like Seinfeld was on and it was on Thursday nights here and every Friday we'd go back to work and everybody would be talking about what happened on Seinfeld last night. Yeah, the water cooler show. Yeah, we don't have that anymore. We don't have water coolers either, I guess. But, um, <laughs> you know, we the, the communal experience yeah. is lost. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's tons of shows out there. I mean, even my wife ha watches shows that I don't know anything about. Yeah. You know, she has her TV upstairs and I have my downstairs. <laughs> you can equate it to like, uh, you know, music, musical tastes where people go, oh, I'm, I'm into this little band in Britain that no one's ever heard of. Yeah. You know, I could be watch, watching some show from Scandinavia that no one's ever heard of, you know, and it's the coolest show ever, you know, I'm, I'm in the loop because, you know, I find shows that people don't, haven't heard of. Yeah. Congratulations. You just threw in your first segue question, Evan. You're growing up in the podcast world. <laughs> really? Uh, then we'll, yeah, we'll move on to metal because otherwise we could talk about television forever. We could. Sure. Now, obviously, uh, you said that you know less about metal, but I do know that you have worked with quite a few times one of the most iconic punks, the punk on bus, Kirk Thatcher. <laughs> on both Dinosaurs and The Kids Are All Right. And he wrote that song, the Punk on the Bus song. He wrote it and sang it mm. uh, in uh, in that uh, Star Trek movie. He did too. It, it's fun as a writer when you write uh, a little piece of music and you get a, a tiny fee for it. You know, it. Uh, I don't. I've, I've I've done it. I mean, I wrote a couple of songs on the Dinosaur yeah. Show. I mean, just like the lyrics or some silly song that they sang, a jingle or a commercial or whatever. I don't yeah. think I'm still getting any money for those. But I, I think initially during the initial yeah. airings, you would get you know a hundred bucks here and a hundred bucks there. Nice. Yeah. Which music genre on bus would you be if you were the character in Star Trek instead? Well, um, I mean, right now at this point in my life, I would be the, the guy listening too loudly to his podcast, probably. Yep. <laughs> um, as much as I enjoy music and love music, uh, I almost exclusively listen to <laughs> podcasts when I'm mm -hmm. going for a walk or, or riding in my car. But, uh, you know, but um, yep. yes, the... The characteristic musics of my life have been either like show tunes from the Broadway musicals or um, or just the very stereotypical stuff from people yep. of my age who grew up in the 70s. And um, I, I leaned more toward the, the kind of um, California sound of the Eagles and Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and, and that kind of stuff, you know, James Taylor and whatever, yep. Carly Simon and that. Um, but I also listened to, uh, um, I loved um, uh, Jethro Tull, and I, I know Ian Anderson is, is touring again. I may try to see him at some point mm -hmm. before he or I die, <laughs> but I loved Tull, 
and uh, you know, and obviously like the Beatles and 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 the sort of the 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 peop- the, the bands that were played at the uh, school dances and stuff when I was a kid. Oh God, school dances don't don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on to metal, obviously. And Evan, you chose the album this week. <laughs> And would you like to tell our listeners what you chose for us? Yeah, well, we got uh, <laughs> System of Down, um, their 2005 album, yeah. Mesmerize, which is their, their fourth album, four years after Chop Suey. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Everybody yeah, knows that. I know that. that song. So it's a follow-up from the 2002 Steal This album. Mesmerize was funny because it came out in two parts. It was Mesmerize and Hypnotize, and they were released... Six months apart and both and, but they're technically a double album. They, they match together. Um, But both albums, funnily enough, both debuted number one on uh, the Billboard album charts, which is make one, makes them one of the few bands to have ever had two albums debut and and number one in the same year. Pretty cool. Surely the Beatles did that. This is one of the few. I could probably find more instances. Yeah. I'm sure this was, but there's not many bands that have done that. Yeah. So that once you started talking, I did switch off a little bit. Oh, God. I'm kidding. Go on, continue. <laughs> I'm just trying to see if I can find the review. Yeah, no, I, I remember this album. We thrashed the hell out of this in 2005, um, yeah. which is it's not that long ago. God, although it, it does feel like it. Yeah, so of course. BYOB is a classic. Um, Bring your own bombs. That got a Grammy. Oh, is that what that means? Bring your own bombs. Yeah. See, he's very political. Um, I hope I can pronounce his oh. name. Um, oh, here we go. All right. Do we want to hear it? <laughs> want to hear yours? Oh, okay. Halfway through mine, you're just gonna go. Put the brakes on. Yeah, sorry. No. Okay. You finish. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, but yeah. My my favorite, the standout song obviously is BYOB, which got them a Grammy. Um, Surge. Tankin, I hope I pronounced that right. He is just an exceptional vocalist. He's up there with one of the best vocalists in the world for having just such a unique voice and for the, the way he uses it, blending his Middle Eastern influences into American metal in such creative ways. There's so much sprinkled throughout their career. Well, in nearly every song, really, will bust out a bit of, uh, you know. Aren't they Armenian? Yes, they're Armenian, and in my in my minimal amount of research that I did, I, I didn't I didn't realize they are from Glendale, California, which is where I lived most of my life, a small suburban town outside of Los Angeles, mm. Glendale. Well, there you go. And Glen, and Glendale is a, a huge Armenian community. I mean, yeah. it, there's like more Armenians in Glendale than there are, you know, in I don't know, left in Armenia sorry, at this point. I mean, it is you know, it is a massive Armenian settlement. And so, I at some point in you know in the 2000s, I'm sure I must have, you know, stood behind them in line somewhere in uh, in Glendale or, or uh, sat next to them in a restaurant or a movie. You can imagine, probably you would have seen like at least billboards or something posters up and. Yeah, but yeah, he he grew up like I said. Yeah, grew up in California, um, and they all met, you know, in in college basically. So it's, I, there's again, that's all littered through the album of just this brilliant understanding of American college humor. I get that a lot in this album. It just okay. Yeah, there's there's jokes, there's musical jokes all the way through it, really, and it's and it's coming from a you know. A, a Middle Eastern influence, whether it's the parents, what they listen to at home, not really sure. I don't <laughs> didn't do research on the parents. Um, 
but then mixed with this real great understanding of American humor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I well, love this album. It's fantastic. Even though it's missing, you know, one of the some their bigger hits. But yeah. Yeah. I'm quite happy to chuck this on repeat. Love it. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah okay. I, can I rate my um, own album? No. Um, but okay, I'll quickly run through this review and then we'll we'll get into Tim's thoughts as well because I know he, he did listen to the album for that. I hope it wasn't too awful. I didn't choose it, so I take no blame at all. My hands are clean. <laughs> Alrighty. When I first thought we were covering System of a Down again, that's exactly where my mood went down. But anyway, despite this, I pressed play on the eight track and found there were indeed 11. The first, Soldier Side, I didn't mind that because I don't mind a bit of Soldier on the side. The second track was definitely the most mainstream. Despite its vulgar acronym, Bring Your Own Bitch, I did. Hey, Evan. <laughs> Anyways, Revenge I had lyrics like, which in lawnmower means Revenge is Assemble. But the next track was close, but no cigarro to being palatable. Even radio slash video, which equated to volume slash mute, until the song title, This Cocaine Makes Me Feel Like I'm On This Song, which is clearly an on-the-nose reference to their erratic ADHD brand of metal. And whilst at first I snorted at the wordplay, the unambiguity is the last straw. As for the track and title, Violent Pornography, meh snuff this song question whilst yet another song that sounds like richard nixon gargling vinegar it confuses and scares me as much as the mental image of nixon gargling vinegar why so enthusiastic and why is so an exclamation mark no wonder the statue is sad well that and politics since this is the first time politics stood out to me lyrically and it made me sad too but is the statue sad or just stoned I don't know why, judging by this album, she had a granite. As for oh. the final two songs, shut up. <laughs> As for the final two songs, both about Hollywood, I can't help but wonder why metal bands have such an issue with song order. Hollywood should be the bookends with the art in the centre. But I do wonder if they wanted to say something a little more offensive given this second attempt at a play on words. And speaking of, this album can be best described by the band's own lyrics. <laughs> However, as I just spent the third week of lockdown after a week of freedom, this type of hyperactivity is not what the doctor prescribed. Two and a half stars. So there was Two some really half. good puns in there. I don't know why you groaned. Uh, yeah, okay. All right. They, we'll call them good. Call them. Yes, okay. So what did you think, Tim? Well, I would think, though, that uh, that you would enjoy some of the wordplay uh, in in their music, uh, you know, mm. being such a, a fan of uh, twisting around words yourself. You know, I thought it was, uh, you know, I, I it's hard to say enjoyable. It's not my cup of tea. The sort of the 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 relentless sort of high pitch of everything the you know the the, yeah. the thump 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 of it all and and not a lot of variety to me the not a not enough of a roller coaster ride yeah. but again I, I on a lyrics level i thought there was a lot of wit there and i enjoyed that the uh, this cocaine makes me feel like i'm on this song i thought it was very yeah. clever you know bring your own bombs i thought you know, that was that was fun i mean there there's a a, a, a level of uh, of comic poetry here and my suspicion is that these guys, as much as their music feels um, kind of oppressive, that they don't take themselves that seriously. They seem to be 
kind of having fun with what they're doing. Am I wrong? Have you heard them in interviews? Are they insanely pretentious? Yeah, or? no, that that's spot on as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're having they're having fun. Uh, you know, yeah. as far as like heavy metal goes, they they're, they're it's just it it doesn't have all the posturing and stuff that I expect that I generally associate with heavy metal. And the and the and the you know, there's some nihilism in there. There's a lot of negativity, but you know, but that's a a, a reasonable reaction to the world we're living in. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I'd like to analyze the two Hollywood songs a little more deeply in my leisure and see if they have anything that really speaks to me as someone, as a denizen of that particular town. Yeah. But, you know, I would I would give it a, a moderate thumbs up. I'm, I'm not saying I'll ever listen to it again, but I was intrigued. <laughs> and they're touring, you know, they're touring. Uh, so who knows? Uh, maybe, uh, I think they're on a double bill with Corn. In that instance, who is the headline? Who would be the headliner yeah. between them and Corn? Probably Corn, I think. Yeah. Do you reckon Evan would be the he headliner? Oh, Corn has just moved down. Yeah. Oh, it's a tie, isn't it? I'm saying if they're the, if Corn's the headliner, then it might be an early evening for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go say hi to my Armenian homies and then uh, and then bug out. Yeah. I'm gonna flip a coin and say Corn is headlining. Yeah. They're the more I think right. they're the more well-known band probably, but you know. My thumb is never on that pulse. No. Yeah, although uh, System of Down haven't played together in at least 10 years. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I mean, they've all been off being busy and, and creating all their own things. Yeah. But as a band, no. They um, they released two new songs at the end of last year. Mm. And that's the first since, uh, yeah, 2005. What did you think of their new songs? Do you like their new stuff or are you... Are you uh... I have not had a chance. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Doggy. Okay. Now, look, I've... As I said, I've, I've been in lockdown. This is the third week that we're in lockdown. And I am a little bit antsy at the moment. This is our sixth lockdown that started only a week or two after our fifth lockdown finished, which was a two-week lockdown. And like before that, we hadn't had one in, in quite a few weeks. So I am a little antsy to, to just... I'm faxed. I, you know, I want this all to be over with, but the fucking assholes out in this world who just keep spreading it won't let it happen. Um, so maybe... Now they've turned the Palais Theatre into a pop-up testing site. Yeah, and last night I should have seen Tommy. Goodness gracious me. No, but what I'm saying is maybe if I had that freedom that my body and soul knew I could go out, I could do things at my leisure, maybe I would have welcomed this music a little bit more. But it, <laughs> I, like whilst it was very much a, an oral, an oral, A-U-R-A-L, representation of my feelings inside it's still yeah I, I i don't know i just i couldn't i couldn't do it not not this i don't know one of the virtues of the pandemic is it's a it's a wow. time to open yourself up to experiences that you normally wouldn't tolerate <laughs> yeah tell me about it <laughs> and uh, i think that there's some value in that yeah well we, we're hoping so i tell you that we just have to get advertisers to give us some value yeah no i i just like I, and i know their represent uh, representation i know their reputa uh, reputation because back 20 years ago when i was a punk chop suey was first released it was everywhere all the metal heads would play it mm -hmm. at any party so like i've always known who they were but i couldn't pick out any of their other songs because that was just the one song that was played to death really <laughs> so maybe that turned me off. Are you accusing System of a Down of being a one-hit wonder? No, I'm accusing that song of being done to death. Yeah, they did kill it, unfortunately. But I'm sorry, I still turn it up. The fans killed it. 
The fans killed it, not the band. When it comes, if it comes on the radio, I will crank it. Good for you. Has that has uh, Chop Suey been used conspicuously in any films? It seems like it might be a good number it for an action should sequence. Have been. Uh, you know, a big fight scene mm. or something. Most of the um, Mesmerize album, you can you know throw in a car chase. You can yeah use it for all sorts of random stuff. I mean, that's one of the virtues of this kind of music. Is I I you know I don't want to sort of sit and have a mellow uh, evening listening to it. But uh, it would energize an extremely dull, uh, badly shot car chase uh, in a a film (laughs) television show. You you, you suddenly feel a lot more like there was a lot more going on. They use a lot of heavy metal or new metal in horror Mm -hmm. a lot of lot of the times mm. oh, i don't know I, i'm over the um take a happy song slow it down play it creepy <laughs> getting done a little bit too many times and you know it's starting to turn me off it has to be done really well now to, to get away yeah. with it i don't watch many trailers anymore because i'm sick of connecting the dots before i see a film oh yeah horror movies have been ruining good songs for many years yeah true but there's uh you know the um Oh, uh, what's his name? The the director. Uh, he just did the. Um, he just did the uh, uh, Suicide Squad and and. The, oh, James Gunn. Yeah, James Gunn. I mean, he uses needle drops, yep. you know, uh, all through his his things, uh, and very yeah. effectively in the you know in the galaxy ones, you know those whatever the Saviors of the Galaxy, whatever those Guardians things are called, the Guardians of the Galaxy. The Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. Yeah, very effectively, you know, yeah. uh, songs. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, we it's it's become kind of a cliche. Or in the um, in those Ryan Reynolds uh, superhero movies, with the again, I, I can't come up with the name of anything anymore. Deadpool. Deadpool. Yeah, and the Deadpool. <laughs> there's always that funny contrast of of playing some you know, kitschy song from the 70s while he's chopping people's heads off and that kind of stuff. It reminds yeah. me of um, Shaun of the Dead when they've got the zombie yeah. uh, in the bar and they're running around with Don't <laughs> Stop Me Now yeah. and Pumps they've got the, the pool yeah. cues. Yeah. Um, but it, anyways, on, on that note, since we're talking about visuals and music together, we'll chuck to a quick ad break and we'll be back in a moment with Tim Doyle. This summer, winter, spring, or fall, the first ever musical theater sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest West End show, The Fosse Forest Ballet. Where's the important stuff? Aha! A thousand pound a week ensemble rate. Ah, that's what Mamma Mia likes. Starring Philip Joel and a West End cast featuring Carrie Alice, Darren Denny, Louise Demon, and Oliver Savile, and more. It all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just I, I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. <gasps> Darling! How long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So her name is Henrietta. The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. You can watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theatre charities, acting for others, and the theatre's trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice. Tights. (laughs) 
And we're back listening to Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we're joined by Hollywood legend Tim Doyle. Holy guacamole, what on earth are you doing on my show? For, for our listeners, you would know that I love a good pun. And I was watching um, Dinosaurs, which is on Disney+, and there was the pun Pangea Hills Dino 210. Yeah. And I was eating dinner at the time. And I've thrown my knife and fork down and I've praised the heavens. I laughed my head off. I was cackling like a witch. I just thought this is the greatest pun so far on this show, at least. But one of the greatest pun I've ever seen. And so I put out the open invite to whoever wrote this episode. And lo and behold, you actually said yes. It is an honor to have you on. It really is. <laughs> that, that show, I, I cannot begin. You got found through a pun. That's, that's quite incredible. How funny is it? <laughs> yeah, well, the thing, on, the thing on the dinosaur show was, you know, it was seven or eight people sitting around in a room all day, and and we would we would want to tell these stories. We would have stories yeah. that we wanted to tell, but you always had to try to find some way to make it about a lizard, to make it about a dinosaur, to make it about prehistoric times, to make it about <laughs> caveman, to make it about you know. So yes, it would be you know there we you'd have a joke, but you had to make sure that it was sort of relevant to the universe of of the dinosaurs. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the we would almost invariably start with the pun and then figure out what the show was, what the uh, what the joke was going to be, or what the little story part was going to be, um, because uh, you know it, it just in order to fit on the show, it had to um, it had to fall into that those constraints. Um, yeah. So I'm sure Dino Two One Zero was just something somebody said, and we all giggled, and we said, okay, now we have to yeah. figure out what the show is. You know, so we had, yes, we had a pregnant teen with an egg, you know, and, you know, and, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, sappiness, um, which was, you know, our commentary on that particular show. But we did that, you know, we did the ton of that. Uh, and, you know, if you couldn't make it dinosaur relevant, then it was kind of like a force to put something on the show that, that just didn't belong. You know, you always had to find a twist on it that yeah. made it appropriate to that world. Yeah. Because I know the, the follow-up after that was Triceracops. Triceracops, yeah. Holy mm -hmm. shit, Tim. What are you doing to me? <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And that was our big Marxist episode. I mean, that was where, you know, where the, uh, where uh, the uh, Earl takes over the, the, the network yeah, yeah. And, and makes some brainy, sh and, and, and inadvertently comes up with a lot of very brainy shows that make people so smart that they stop watching television. Uh, yeah. Part of the heavy-handed <laughs> social satire of the Dinosaurs program. And the nonstop biting of the hand that fed us. <laughs> yes, yes. But I look, at it, and I think that's one thing that look, John Oliver does it. Obviously, The Simpsons have always done it. But I think that satire is dying a little bit, especially in TV comedy. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe people are taking themselves too seriously, and networks are taking themselves a little bit too seriously. But I don't work in television, so I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you're not um, wrong. I mean, I think uh, it's one another one of the victims of media consolidation. I mean, when I started in TV, there were a lot of production entities out there. You know, lots yeah. of little independent producers. I mean, I worked, you know, for years for Carsey Werner, which did the Roseanne Show and Grace Under Fire. And, you know, Third Rock from the Sun and all those shows. Yeah. And, you know, and slowly those things have kind of gone away. And now basically, you know, you work for one of four, uh, four or five entities out there that, that create all of the content for TV and movies. And um, so it, it just quite naturally, you are less inclined to risk offending your bosses 
mm. and uh, and so you you you're going to see yeah. less satire. You're going to see less biting the hand that feeds you, because um, you know people want to work. And um, yeah, as somebody, especially as somebody who's kind of picked mm. on Disney maybe one time too many uh, and fallen out of their good graces, I think that there's oh have you? Yeah, 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 I think so. <laughs> You know, I poked, I poked him in the eye one time too many, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm welcome back in Burbank anytime soon. Bugger. I, I do follow your tweets, though, <laughs> so I do know exactly what you're talking about. Well, going back to Dinosaurs, I mean, that was the leftiest show that I ever worked on. Yes, no, I can tell. You know what? Funny, a lot of people have asked me, because um, I, I started watching it as soon as it came on Disney+, Plus. but a lot of people have asked me if it still holds up. And really, no, it does, because it's a mirror to society that doesn't change that that is a society that we're still in today with a lot of these episodes that are the issues in the like the sexual harassment one, obviously, and, you know, the, the, the network TV and especially in the sitcom world, because, you know, there was a huge lawsuit in the 90s. Uh, some writers on Friends were sued. Oh, wow. it was a very famous lawsuit. And I know the people involved. And the ruling at that time, a writer's assistant said that this was a hostile work environment, that she felt like the discussions, the sexual discussions that the writers were having in the writer's room were sort of inappropriate for the workplace. And she yeah. felt angry and hurt um, and, and sort of ill-used in this environment. And the ruling of the judge at the time was that, you know, talking about sex and, and, and making snarky sex jokes in a context of a comedy writer's room is a fairly acceptable part of the process and you know that and that became the standard by which writers rooms functioned for most of my career was that you know in the sacred space of the writers room people were allowed to free associate and say things that you know the banter that made you know that even if it wasn't directly useful for the show you know you would kind of come in and clear your throat every day and say this happened between my wife and I or my girlfriend and I or whatever my lover you know blah 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 and you could talk about stuff like that but but I I know but I stand by it I mean if you're if you're trying to write comedy it feels like you have to be free to you know to say things that maybe cross the line while, while you're working toward finding what you can actually use for a TV show. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. I, look, I, I was trying to talk to someone, or not, wasn't trying to. We, someone had said something that I laughed at it and said, that's so petty, then laughed at it, then called him the C word, then laughed again <laughs> and said, oh my God, then laughed again and said, oh my God, that is fucking hilarious. And he turned around and said, I don't want to be petty. And I said, no, but you don't understand. It's funny. So you get the pass for that reason because you've structured a joke. You've made a very funny, I'm quite hard to make laugh. And this made me laugh pretty hard. And I was sort of just trying to say, don't chill. Just because I said it was petty doesn't mean I said it was a bad petty. Like it was just, you know, the pettiness of comedy. Right. Sometimes you have to be cruel uh, in order to be hilarious. You know, um, it, uh, there's a, but you know, the, the principle has evolved in the last few years, this idea of not punching down, right? That the targets of your uh, rancor should not Mm. be people who are disempowered, Um, you know, because for years, you know, 
you know, there was a tendency to make racist kind of jokes or jokes about, you know, someone with a disability or whatever, making fun of somebody who, you know, has a, a speech impediment or something like that in a comedy yeah. was fair, fairly fair game or somebody who like was sexually ambiguous in some way or, you know, something like yeah. that. Though, though, you know, those kinds of things, even just a few years ago, those things were very fair game on sitcoms, you know, to, to have some joke I mean, I worked on a show called Rules of Engagement, where, you know, uh, one of the standard sort of put downs on the show would be David Spade calling somebody gay. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was like, you know, the, the, the young man on the show who was like desperately in love with his new fiance would talk about her in glowing terms and, and, and Spade would look at him and go, gay, you know. That's what I do, Tim. And I am gay. Yeah, but I'm saying that's the, that's the kind of thing that would make me cringe now. But that was not that long ago that we did that show. And and the context is, mm. you know, yes, he's using gay as a pejorative. The context is what he's saying is there's something that you're not the stalwart uh, Dick Smith that I am. You know, so it's both yeah. a, it's it's a, both a joke, you know, uh, about his own character and his, and his, the flaws in his own character and a put down of this other guy. It's it's interesting because this has happened very quickly. You know, yeah. if you think yeah. about the the comedy movies that I grew up on in the eighties and nineties, all the things that, you know, the Animal House and Porky's and and things like that. There's a reason that those movies yeah. don't exist anymore. I mean, that no. that nobody's making movies about you know about horny high school boys spying on girls in locker rooms, you know, through a little hole in the tile, you know, and and getting caught jerking off, you know whatever i mean it, it, those are the kind of stories maybe for good or for bad but those are the kind of stories that uh, i mean there was a new movie like that every friday you know in the 80s and 90s uh, when i was uh, coming up and that's a genre that's just been wiped off the face of the earth you know i mean i remember in animal house he he, uh, he takes a girl to the wild party at the at the frat and she's passed out drunk you know, on the lawn of her house when he brings her home and a little devil appears on his shoulder and tells it and says, fuck her. And then an angel appears on his other shoulder saying, no, you can't take advantage of her. She's, you know, you know, and it was sort of, that was like one of the biggest laughs in the show. Every one of those movies had these horrible, I mean, things that would be viewed as horrible now. Um, yeah. And, you know, and again, this is all mm. for the good. Society has evolved and we don't do that kind of humor anymore. But I also noticed that there's no movies. There are very few comedy movies made anymore. It's like at a, yeah. at a certain point when you keep narrowing the gauge of what can, is socially acceptable funny. In, a, in, in a movie, well, then you, you basically can't make a movie. You know, yeah. it's very hard to make an R-rated comedy anymore. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, I don't know. Very, there are very few of them. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I saw a host on, I uh, can't remember what channel, CNN, something like that, a while ago was sort of going, you know, if you keep taking all these subjects away from comedians, you know, we're not going to have anything to be funny about. Um, but they're, they're still finding a way. You know, there's some, yeah. there's some wonderful stand-up going on, um, you know, without having to call someone a name or... Yes, and I think, and you have to, and you have to sort of accept the fact that things evolve and the things move on. But, I, but it is... I guess I'm just going to say it's interesting that things have changed so quickly and, yeah. and so radically that that there are basically, mm. you know, whole genres of comedy entertainment that you just can't go to anymore. Um, and we're, you know, we're looking at different things now. We're looking at different mm. ways to be funny. Although I'm, I'm glad to see that we've moved on from things like the Carry On series. Fanny Hill, yeah, they, they can stay back in the 
seventies, I think. Yes, very vulnerable. I used to watch Benny Hill with my yeah. nana. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it was really quite bad. In terms of, in terms of where we are now, you know, uh, you know, chasing around women. Well, yeah, it was vulgar. It was vulgar burlesque comedy. Why I'm against it, sorry to, to just jump in here, is because we don't watch a horror movie, right, like Scream, and go, what these characters are doing is socially acceptable. So I don't know why we're looking at a comedy and judging that by what is in this has to be socially acceptable. That's why things to like Benny Hill to me will be funny. Literally making light of the situation. Well, yeah, isn't that what we're meant to do? Is to make look. What was that film? Novita e Bella. Roberto Bagnini won a whole ton of awards because he turned a dark subject. Got a lot of death threats too. Uh, of course he did, because there are assholes in the world, Evan. People will <laughs> do anything for attention. I'm telling you that. Like start fucking podcasts. Um, <laughs> Right, but you know what I mean. Like that, yeah. we don't. Why? Why are we judging comedy with a different barometer than what we are judging all the other movies? We're not watching a superhero movie and going, "Well, these villains are killing people." Well, we don't know. Let's ban all these. Let's change comic book movies so that they're not killing people anymore. I, and I know that the Avengers, no one dies in those movies sure. of of the innocent people. That's Disney-fied. Yes, we understand that. So I. That's why I'm against it. Because I feel like we're singling comedy out. Look, I think there's a healthy pushback. I mean, there's nothing sadder to me than to write a joke or to tell a story and have someone come to me and say, that offended me, you know, that hurt me. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, you made a, you know, you made a sidelong joke about, you know, Armenian people, or you made a sidelong, yeah. you know, sort of slam at obese people or, or something like that. And and I was watching your show and I was enjoying it. And then, and then I suddenly felt very sad and, and uh, alienated and, you know, and criticized. And uh, you, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's not a good feeling. You know, you want everybody to feel included and be in on the joke, you know. Yeah. But, so I think it's a healthy dynamic that people yeah. are coming forward and saying, you know, these shows that I watched, they hurt my feelings. They made me feel shitty when I was a kid growing up or whatever. And I, I think, you know, I think it's good that we're not doing them anymore. Um, but I also think we should sort of acknowledge the history, you know, and say mm -hmm. these things are valid and they were valid in context. I mean, you know, you can't, we, you know, just because Woody Allen is questionable now in terms of his, his behaviors and, and his motivations <laughs> yeah, well, through the years as far as uh, women and young women go, you know, yep. you, can't, you can't tell me that he didn't write and direct, you know, yeah. 10 or 12 of the best comedies of the 20th century. Hand on my heart, never seen a Woody Allen movie. Or Monty yeah. Python, for example. I mean, there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like kind of stuff about gay people and there's stuff about uh, if, if John Cleese came out with a, with a new show and he was in blackface, Today, I would say, John, you you should not do that. No. But I but I can't tell I can't tell the BBC you know to stop running old Monty Python episodes because they had a teeny Europe for something you know forty years ago, fifty years ago. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they wouldn't air those episodes anymore. No, they have. They pulled some of those episodes. Yeah, you know, they've definitely pulled them. You know, but it's it's kind of like well. I don't know, take the whole of it, except, you know, and accept it in context. I mean, see, I, I like what they've done with, um, with Gone with the Wind, where 
they haven't messed with the film. They haven't taken it down. They just put a disclaimer at the, at the front, sort of going, hey, you know, this is 50 years old. Right. And, and accept it in those terms. I mean, you don't want to expurgate history and you don't want to, you know, sort right. of dismantle culture. In the, you just want to give it a context. I mean, when they play Gone with the Wind on the, on the Turner Classic Movies channel, which we have here in the United States, I don't know if you have that, whatever, but yeah. I mean, yes, they have, not only do they have a thing at the beginning, but they, uh, nowadays they have like a little five minute discussion uh, where they, you know, where they talk about the context and the reasons for the storytelling. I mean, Gone with the Wind is a terribly racist movie. And, <laughs> and the story is, you know, is told from the point of view of, of Margaret Mitchell, who was celebrating the romance of the of the wonderful you know pre-war south and that beautiful yeah. i mean the whole there's a prologue at the beginning about this mystical land of princes on horseback and and maidens in distress and you know the 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 whole backstory of gone with the wind is is kind of ugly but it it you know it speaks to the culture in which it was created yeah so you know all this i don't know i mean i i have, I have a lot of ambivalence about this stuff but you know but totally accept you know, totally accept the the uh, the onward march of uh, sensibilities that they're always going to change. You know, we don't listen to the same music we listened to 50 years ago. Why should we be making the same kinds of movies and TV shows? You mean the same terrible dead jokes? Welcome to Thrash and Treasure, Tim. <laughs> or the same musicals being revived. Yes, well, speaking of which, excellent. That's your second segue. Round of applause. Very cool. <laughs> What did you think of Guys and Dolls, Evan? Yes. Well, this is the thing. Like, you've just rattled off most of my points. Really? With uh, Yeah, with, with, with something that was, you know, made in the 50s, then revived oh, many times. But many times. Many times. I listened to the 1992 version where, like, you know, why do you keep making the same thing over and over again? Music has changed. Let's let's move on. Updated a bit. Old people need entertainment too, Evan. Well, see, I'm I'm of two minds with with guys and dolls. Okay. So you you want to honour the show? Like obviously, a bunch of guys have got together and gone, "Hey, let's do guys and dolls," and they've gone, "Yeah, great idea. Let's do it exactly how we remember it, <laughs> and do it again." Um, yeah, a museum piece, as they would call it. Yeah. Now, and again, this the cast in this is phenomenal. You're yeah. like, I know of everyone in this cast. And I'm just going, oh, they're, they're in it and they're in it. And J.K. Simmons is in it. I know yeah. him. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it just goes on and on. And, and you, you get all these really talented people together. And they, they could have dated it a bit. It, maybe not the singing, but certainly the music. You know, orchestras play differently now. Uh, or even in 92, that you know, this thing's still 40 years old at that point. A loyalty to the show to do it again, how it was. I kind of wish they'd updated it though. <laughs> so I'm I stuck could, down yeah. the middle. You know, there's a lot of xylophone, there's a lot of whistles and bells. And... What about a scar version? <laughs> no, just, just a modern take, just replay it with a modern orchestra. You know, they play differently now. That's, that's why you can hear an orchestra from 40 years ago. And geez, yeah, that's an old sounding orchestra. This reminded me a lot of your, your early um, was it MGM films, you know, because it's it 1950s, it's Rat Pack, it it's, uh, you know, Dean Martin it is. sort of era. Frank Sinatra, yeah. There are certainly musicals that are more uh, abstract, more poetic, you know, yeah. where you're not dealing with, uh, you know, as, as, as kind of complex a plot. You know, mm -hmm. it's more of a mood piece or something like that. You know, uh, I mean, a show like Guys and Dolls is just so old fashioned in the sense that it's 
you know, it, it's, it's an A story and a B story um, woven together, uh, mm -hmm. themes and, and, you know, and, and protagonists searching for goals that are clearly outlined to the audience. I mean, it's a very old fashioned musical in that respect. But, but those tend to be the ones that I like the most. I mean, having, and I've seen most of the big musicals of the, you know, of, of, of recent years. I mean, I saw, you know, Hamilton in New York and, and it's a wonderful show yeah. and I love the music, you know, um, but it's, it's a little more abstract. It's, it's not, and the, and the, you know, because it skits over the surface of the man's life over a period of 50 years or something, he, you know, you, you're not telling a, um, uh, it doesn't have story. Uh, Aristotelian unities of time, place, and action that, uh, that you know, that the normal storytelling it we do has. Now you saw this on Broadway, didn't you? I saw this production, and I think I also saw the later production. There was a production a couple of years ago with Oliver Platt and uh, and that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah that that was the uh, Michael Grandage production, I think. Or you and McGregor had done that in London. Yeah. That that particular production. They, they, they revived it like seven eight years ago. I don't know when it was, but I saw that one too. I, I pretty much see Guys and Dolls whenever it pops up. I saw a production yeah. in L.A. here at the Music Center years ago with Milton Berle and. You know, I mean, oh, wow. I, whenever a production of Guys and Dolls at, of any level comes through L.A., I usually check it out. And, yep. and if I'm in New York, I'll, I'll see the, you know, the current revival. And, and, you know, it's it's one of the shows, one of those sort of uh, evergreen shows that is always being revived, you know, because because it's such a solid musical, you know. And, uh, you know, this is a show written in this Runyonese dialect. Um, you know, uh, Damon Runyon was a was a writer. I think he was a sports writer, but uh, but also sort of a you know kind of a humor columnist that wrote for the New York papers in the 1940s, 30s, and 40s, and I guess 50s maybe. He's one of those guys who sort of commented on street life in New York, and 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 it, and he was writing from you know this kind of New York Jewish perspective, and it's amazing how a show like this sort of translates into. You know, you can do an all black production of it. You could do an all Asian production of it. You, you know, you could do, you, you, know, you can do it in other countries and different things. I'm sure it's been done. I'm sure there's a production somewhere in India right now, if, if they're, you know, if they're, if they, well, probably not because the theaters are all, no. but at any, yeah. at any given point around the world, I'm sure, uh, yeah. maybe on, again, on a, on a day that isn't in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> yeah. there are generally a, probably a thousand production of guys and dolls being done in, primary schools and secondary schools and colleges and, and amateur and professional theater companies. It's yep. just, it's a bulletproof show. It's a, just a show that always works. Uh, uh, and I never saw it. And I, I, maybe I should chase down the, um, the, the cast recording, but there was an all black version of guys and dolls uh, that played qu uh, quite successfully on Broadway in the seventies. I'm going to say yeah. like the mid seventies, there was a revival that starred like Robert Guillaume and, uh, but it was in the wake of, that uh, surge of black musicals that came out in the sixties and seventies. Uh, there was a, uh, they, they had like an all black version of uh, Hello, Dolly. Hello Dolly that happened with Pearl Bailey and they did an all black guys and dolls. And I think they did change some of the orchestration and some of the, you know, and some of the dialogue for that production. I'd be very curious to seek it out to see whether they adapted the music and made it a little more interesting and not such a museum piece as you suggest. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I did wish that I had the time to sit down and and listen to other versions to see, you know, what if they did. I did see some random clips from, you know, uh, what do you call them, amateur productions yeah, sure. and smaller smaller shows. Excellent. And they, as far as I could tell, they were using the exact same music. 
Um, with nothing wrong with that, trying to you know recreate that fifties vibe, but oh uh, yeah, I, I think it really needs to be updated. Updated. Yeah. Just to to throw it back, just on, uh, before I forget, Robert. Uh, Gu- Robert uh, Guillaume, who I worked with on the Sports Night program. Oh wow! He, well, he was Rafiki in The Lion yes. King, the original Rafiki. Yes. Yeah, who was was also we had Nathan Lane who was in the '92 version, yes. as well as Ernie Sabella who were both Timon and Pumbaa. So hopefully Matthew Broderick has done a Guys and Dolls professionally out there. And I don't they're... know that he has. I don't know that he has. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's my uh, Disney knowledge coming into play there. Anyway, sorry. I was going to say I needed Aaron to to help me yeah. with like the the only thing I knew of Guys and Dolls was through popular culture it's it's made its way into the simpsons and to yeah yeah all sorts of different guys shows and dolls are just a bunch of crazy guys and dolls yeah see that's all i knew of it i was <laughs> really disappointed that, that song wasn't in there <laughs> and you know, i didn't even know that for a long time because i didn't know this musical very well for a, a long time i've never seen it so yeah I, only a, i think the only trip. the only breakthrough song was um luck be a lady mm-hmm. tonight yep. So I'm surprised that that's the only one I did know. Yeah. So why is it such an iconic, uh, you know, Sinatra. big name musical when, oh. when there's only one song that I've heard Sinatra. of? Well, the original production had a, another song in it, I Love You, A Bushel and a Peck, which was a oh, big yeah. hit in the 1950s. Again, in the yep. kind of thinking of the time, they didn't want to put it in the movie since it was already a hit. So they replaced it in the movie with the Kitty Cat song, Pet me, Papa, or something. But Bushel and a Pet was a big was a big uh, hit in the you know in the fifties. But yeah, not a lot of hits out of that show. But familiar songs. I mean, uh, you know, so, I mean, you know, standards. But you can't go to Las Vegas without hearing "Luck Be a Lady." I mean, it's, it's you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in front of the Bellagio when they're doing their fountain show. You hear Frank Sinatra singing "Luck Be a Lady" as the water shoots into the air. Oh wow! It's the you know national anthem of Las Vegas. Yeah, see that that's the other thing with this. It seems to be about gambling. Um, I can't, couldn't really glean the story just from listening to the album. This is the thing, you know, I've, I've not seen it. I haven't read up what it's about. I was just trying to glean the story from the music. And apparently $1,000 is a lot of money. And, you know, if you knew, if you wanted to know how much money you needed to sing I'm in the Money, about $1,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was it Mary, Mary the Man today to change them later it was like yeah good luck with that one a terrible theme yeah <laughs> yeah other than gambling i assume someone's lost some money and owes someone else some money and is trying to get married in in the middle of it uh, that's about all i could glean from the story so so why is it so popular i mean my answer is that you know musicals are hard i mean uh, uh, there are very few i think there are very few truly excellent musicals um, because most of them fall apart in the second act as a story. The stories don't add up to a lot. And and musicals tended to be this kind of thing that was thrown together, like a patched up thing that had like a time limit because we have to open next week. And so things get stuffed in and then they become sacred. They become part of the successful musical. And most of them are a mess. I mean, most musicals are, are you know, as literature are a, are a mess, but the songs, you know, are very often quite beautiful. And yeah. so we have a sentimental attachment to some of these shows that have these wonderful songs. And, and also, of course, it's live theater. So when you go to a, a musical show, it takes you back to the experience you had uh, at that age where you were at that time. I mean, my father and mother on one of their early dates went to New York City and saw Oklahoma, 
you know, uh, when he was just back from the World War II. And so Oklahoma always had this very sentimental place in their life, you know. Oh, uh, and, and I think that that's true for a lot of people. And before, you know, rock music sort of took off in the, you know, in the 60s, um, the music of Broadway was this, like the popular music of America, you know. So the musicals from the classical era up until like the mid 60s ha are held in this esteem because I think that music was an, just an important part of everyday life. It was on the radio. It was what was on the radio, you know, before the Beatles came along, you know, and, and changed everything. So, yes, I think people are overly sentimental about some of these musicals from the classic area. But the other thing I really will say is that it's a hard form. It's, it's, it's hard to make a great musical. You know, people keep trying to make new musicals and they don't tend to be very good. They don't tend to capture the imagination. <laughs> I mean, you know, Evan Hansen and Hamilton were like big breakthroughs uh, in the last few years. And, uh, and prior to that, the musical form was, you know, not doing great. You know, you had whatever rent, you had March of the Falsettos, you had, you know, chorus line and stuff. But I mean, the, the, the Broadway musical went through a very sallow period for like 30 years and, and was also the, you know, the subject of much derision. I mean, people couldn't get over that hump of, of like, whoa, they just break into song. You know, oh, the Jets and the Sharks, they're dancing <laughs> like ballet dancers in the street. You know, that's crazy. What kind of gang does this guy belong to? You know, yeah. I mean, that was the staple of stand-up comedy for like 40 years, making fun of how dumb musicals were. So <laughs> the fact that there's been this popular cultural revival of the musical is kind of a fun thing because it is a difficult form to do. It's difficult to do well. And um, the, the book for Guys and Dolls is, you know, is dated, but it's pretty good. You know, it's a pretty good book. And the musical on the whole is an enjoyable experience. You, you, but yes, you like so many things, like the comedies of the, of the 80s and 90s that I was talking about earlier, you have to sort of choke back a little bit of something. You know, you, yeah. you, the, the sexism and the, you know, the, the woman desperate to get married and the guy trying to, you know, get out of it and doesn't want to get married because, you know, he doesn't want to get, you know, he doesn't want to get tied down because he, you know, I mean, that, that, that old school kind of misogyny, that's rampant throughout the, yeah. this, this particular. All of a sudden we're watching an episode of Honeymooners. Yeah, yeah. or it's, it, it's very, it's more reminiscent of like Mad Men, you know, the sort of the sexism of that time, the, the yeah. idea of women as, you know, as an, as an accessory for a good time and not a, you know, a, a whatever, a viable life partner. So, you know, if that kind of stuff, if, if you if you've got a tolerance for a little bit of that kind of stuff, it's a it's a fun show. It's a bouncy show with a lot of laughs in it. And I think a lot of the people are sentimental about it because it was widely produced in high schools and, you know, in colleges, uh, too, throughout the United States. So, you know, yeah. the theater geeks who who run everything in, in New York theater, you know, they're every, you know, Nathan Lane's, I mean, he's named Nathan literally because, you know, he grew up loving guys and dolls <laughs> and he wanted to play Nathan Detroit. Funny you say that because uh, for those who have seen your sitcom, uh, The Kids Are All Right, in the pilot episode, the Tim character who is based off yourself uh, yes. does Man of La Mancha, but I believe that the real musical that you did was actually Guys and Dolls. Yes. So that functions sort of as that your big break, if you will, in community theater and yeah yeah my first my first big musical role as a kid was to yep. play nathan detroit and guys and dolls and you know i got my laughs i, I <laughs> and uh and it really sort of gave me you know uh gave me the proverbial hard on for uh that kind of performing and that kind of storytelling so uh yep. um you know it was just an amazing experience and uh and i and i was a big ham like the kid is on the show 
mm-hmm. um, you know, always eager to get in front of the, the crowd, always eager to for a bit of the spotlight, you know, battling for attention because I'm, I am, as in the story, I'm, I'm one of eight brothers, you know, and uh, a ridiculous Irish Catholic family. And yep. uh, so, you know, the, the but th- that's an accurate sense of how I was when I was that age. Uh, you know, I was a kid who wanted to differentiate himself desperately from his very conservative family and his very crowded family. And uh, <laughs> and I got, you know, very excited about things like musical theater, which was the you know, accessible version of show business that I had access to. Even though I grew up, you know, in basically 10 minutes from Hollywood and Burbank, you know, I grew up in Glendale, which basically is sandwiched right between uh, Burbank and Hollywood, where which is, you know, where all television and movies are based or, you know. Yeah. You know, but all of American stuff is ostensibly based. So I was, it's funny being very close to show business, growing up around professional show business, you know, the, the, those fences around the studios are just as high for me as they are for somebody in, you know, Iowa or in Perth, Australia. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you, you know, you drive by on the freeway and you look over the fence at Disney and you see some of the stuff going on, but um, you have no idea as a kid how to get in there and actually start mucking around. It's, it's another reason that the shows are so revived is it's really funny when you have eighth graders wearing gangster outfits, walking around talking D's and O's and smoking cigars and talking about dames and, you know, and, and like, come on, let's go play our craps game and stuff. I mean, it's, it's very amusing to see that. It's kind of that Bugsy Malone sort of thing. And so yes. schools, mm. and schools do the show relentlessly. But there, there's, you know, there are t- like 20 shows mostly of the Hammerstein, the Rodgers and Hammerstein ones and the, you know, a couple of Cole Porter ones, a couple of George Gershwin ones, you know, that are like, you know, the, 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 the standard classic musicals from the 1940s and 50s that, yeah. that America seems to have a very sentimental attachment to. And then, and then there's all these ancillary shows that aren't as good that, you know, that, um, that didn't quite make the grade. And yeah when, you know, I mean, there's a reason that uh, the movies keep doing IP, doing intellectual property. You know, there's a reason that, that every new movie that uh, is a sequel, you know, that all the TV shows, I mean, I was approached about writing a new version of Lassie, you know. Um, Don't CG the dog. Don't you dare CG that dog. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Do not CG that dog. Oh, believe me. I came in with a very nihilistic attitude about Lassie and there was then there was no enthusiasm for my take on it. But I'm saying is, as a television writer, IP, intellectual property is king right now. You know, that's why Disney is doing, you know, remakes of all their cartoons as live action and all their live action is cartoons. And they're doing prequels and sequels to every single thing. Every ride at Disneyland is going to now be, you know, also a movie. You know, all of these companies are so terrified of, of sticking their neck out and and risking money on a new idea, an original idea. You know, they're going to do a revival. Somebody, I, I read that they're going to do a movie of uh, Guys and Dolls. They're going to shoot a new movie of Guys and Dolls. <laughs> okay, let's go full circle. But, and, and Steven Spielberg just shot his, you know, his redo of West Side Story. West Side, the movie yeah. of West Side Story is is beautiful. It's really well done. Why on earth would you have to remake West Side Story and, and, and Steven Spielberg, no less? Why do that? Because they're chicken shit. They know that if they, if they do a new musical called, you know, uh, you know, Mary's Got a Hat, 
nobody's, you know, there's not going to be any interest in it because nobody, nobody knows that. But a certain number of people will automatically go see a new production of West Side Story. You know, so, it, so they're, if they're going to risk $150 million, they might as well go with something that's a known quantity. Yeah. And that's the whole nature of this business. I really want to see Mary's got a hat. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, with Chris Evans. <laughs> yeah, we have Chris Evans in it. But uh, Mary Tester sings, I am wearing a hat in in trousers. Yeah, and it's funny you, you mentioned Bugsy Malone because that was my first musical in 1997, if we can see that day. Oh, that's great. You did you were in Bugsy Malone. <laughs> yes. So we were we were go. dressed up as gangsters and it was hilarious. And it's fun and funny. It was. Yeah, and that's why you do Oklahoma where everybody dresses like cowboys. Yeah. I never did I did the King and I, a, a mostly white production of King and I. Yes, I was oh, in a white production of King and I too. <laughs> so, so to answer my question of why is guys and dolls so great so revered and so great all of those reasons because everyone's done everyone's done it. all it. Yep. creative theater kids i haven't did it in high school or done they... to death and the world is a chicken shit place <laughs> you know, show business is a, is a world of cover your ass i don't know what what it's like in australia but watch american tv Every new show is a version of an old show. Yep. I watch RuPaul's Drag Race. I watch RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. I watch RuPaul's Drag Race España, oh. RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under, Canada's Drag Race, Drag Race UK, Drag Race Holland, and very soon Drag Race Philippines. So you are absolutely right, Tim. <laughs> but at least 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, whenever uh, you know, Ru started, that was at least an original idea that somebody, yeah. somebody rolled the dice with. You know, again, we're uh, every new show that's that's shooting now is a revival of something or a, or a piece of material that was tried and tested somewhere else. I mean, a lot of the pilots and things that we do for new shows here are, I mean, I keep getting presented with something. Oh, this is a hit show in Israel. This is a hit show in South Africa. Yeah. You know, uh, we redo versions of you know English shows all the time. Uh, you know, mm. uh, and Austra and uh, I don't know uh, Australian shows. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of Australian shows that have made the that have, that have been flipped into American versions. But the UK, I mean, U, UK intellectual property, we reuse yeah. all the time. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, and and it's 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 just be, basically being people being chicken shit because they they can point to it and they say, look, this was successful somewhere. Someone liked this, yeah. and more importantly, they have a hundred episodes of this already written. So you know, if you're you know, so don't worry about being creative because there's some episodes you can steal, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, if Hollywood wants an original IP, an original story, I have three novels that are a trilogy that they're more than happy to give me a call and to Jeff Bezos. Or Listen, if, if, if those novels gained any kind of infamy out, out in the world, uh, Hollywood, Hollywood would come knocking on your door, you know, yep. they, they, yep. but they want something you know, they want something that has already had a life and a success somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, I know. I just have to get people mm. to buy them, Tim. Now, a fun fact for people at home, uh, sitcom fans that, and I know it's your, a friend of yours, James Burrows, his father is Abe Burrows, who wrote mm -hmm. Guys and Dolls. Uh, James Burrows is, uh, is another sitcom legend who has directed maybe a thousand, two thousand episodes. Yeah, he was the premier pilot director for 15 yeah. years in television, uh, doing mostly those those uh, multicam shows. He did the pilot for Friends, and yeah. I think you know for Frasier, and you know, and, and Cheers, and wow. and and every every hot pilot every year. You know, James Burroughs had his for you know through the 90s and the aughts. 
James Burroughs basically had his pick of the, of the pilots. Um, with the waning of the multicam form, uh, I'm, I, don't think, I don't see James working as much. But he's, and he's also an older guy now. I mean, he's, yeah. well, he's, he's 15, 20 years older than me. So uh, he's in his, he's in his freaking donage. I bet, but he, I'm, I'm assuming he's over at Nate Niles in Beverly Hills. Uh, and I can, and I can stop in and say hi to him at any time. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, he's, there's, a, there are certain breakfast places in, in LA where people like that go. <laughs> you know, know where all the cool kids hide. Yeah, well, when I'm in LA, Tim, you can show me where all the cool kids hang out but yeah a burroughs wrote that and he also he, he wrote Le uh, frank lesser's other big musical uh, how to succeed yeah. how to succeed in business without really trying uh burroughs wrote that and and i think i think J J uh, jamie burroughs james burroughs started out as like a stage manager working for his dad on some of these broadway shows you know and then and then transitioned to you know television and working in la doesn't matter where you start yeah what are the chances that a guy who his father was very <laughs> successful in show business also had a successful show business career what are the odds against that? As somebody who bumps up against that every day, the odds are very good that if you're in the, that your family's in the business, that you're going to have some, uh, a bit of a leg up. You know, my, my father taught anthropology. But yeah, look, I, to be honest, I, I don't have the affection for guys and dolls that everyone has. I've watched one YouTube production. It was a high school production that the director had them all um, standing at the front of the stage at upstairs downstage center and that's it all dialogue was done there and then they would walk around and do their little motions and stuff right and they were mic'd up <laughs> right but they would then come together and stand there. and even if they were at a table they would get up from that table and move to the center of the stage right well, before the apron maybe that's the only place they had good lights you know i, mean, um, I just been a I was about to part. say maybe the spotlight's yeah. broken i don't, I don't yeah. know they didn't but... have a follow spot so they had to basically <laughs> find their way into the light yeah. you know for to sing their song yep the director did not have a clue that's what because these kids had some talent they really did well that's good but, but i mean no i again i got hooked into guys and dolls at a very early age i had never heard of it before the, the you know the school decided they were going to do it and then you know because i was a big ham and a, and a showboat at school I ended up getting the big part in it and I just went to town. So it's more of a sentimental experience for me, but when you, it, it's not a deep story. It's not, it's not yeah. a deep story that, that really resonates emotionally. It really is about let's have fun. Yeah. And I think also on some level, it's a compendium, the kind of comedy in it is a compendium of the, of the comic attitudes of that era that, that again was centered around the, the Jewish comedy of New York you know, specific, I mean, all those writers, all those, um, those comedy writers that, that they, they were the superstars of, of American comedy for 50 years, they all came out of uh, a one mile radius of the East River in, in Manhattan. I mean, every, you know, all the Woody Allens and Mel Brooks's and, you know, Larry Gelbert and, and, you know, all these great comedy writers that I sort of grew up, Carl Reiner, that I grew up sort of emulating and being very interested in. Um, they all kind of came out of this, this culture from the 50s and, and 60s in New York. And, um, you know, so I, for whatever reason, I've always felt very akin to that. And, um, you know, I'm not Jewish, I'm, I'm Irish Catholic, but I've, I've always loved those rhythms, the, the rhythms of the comedy that, that these, these folks um, did at that time. So, and guys and dolls just fits right into that. I mean, Nathan Detroit is, um, you know, is, is a Borscht Belt comic. You know, he's a, a baggy pants comedian 
who's doing this you know, and he's doing uh, you know, jokes about his ball busting girlfriend. I mean, that's, you know, that's the, that's what he's playing. He's got this, he's got this girlfriend who's hanging on him and he's commitment shy and there's no good reason for him to be commitment shy, you know, but for, for whatever reason he is and he can't bring himself to, you know, to, uh, uh, make an honest woman of, um, of Miss Adelaide and he's, you know, he's an absurd comic character. Uh, you know, Nathan Lane did him great. Apparently there was a production in 1959 um, in New York where um, Walter Matthau played the role. Um, you know, it's, it's just that kind of iconic guy. There's, it's, a, it's a part of American culture that, that I'm very sentimental about, but I completely agree with you that there's not a lot of artistic merit to the storytelling here. Mm. But it's very complicated, very straightforward the way it's done, but it's not yeah. incompetent. You know, everything resolves in a fairly reasonable way and it's really well done, but it's, um, yeah, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't leave you with a lot of, uh, a lot to think about, you know, afterwards. I mean, you see something like, um, you know, Cabaret or Fiddler or, you know, or, you know, or Hamilton or whatever. And there's a, there's a lot of thoughtfulness in those shows. You know, there's a lot of like, well, how we think about ourselves in the world. And there's, you know, the, there aren't a lot of heavy themes in Guys and Dolls. It's just for fun. Look, the much maligned movie with Marlon Brando and and um, and uh, uh, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, you know, isn't that bad? It's pretty good, you know. Uh, I I I feel like Frank Sinatra is miscast. Um, mm -hmm. You know, on Broadway, the original guy was Sam Levine, who is this very funny, um, you know, Jewish actor performer. Who yeah. you know he and he had that wonderful rhythm. You know, he he was basically. He was the only guy, for whatever reason, in Hollywood that was allowed to be a Jew. I mean, he in, back in those days, and uh, and you, you, he turns up in you know in old like the Thin Man movies. And I watched, I saw him in a movie called uh, Crossfire the other night, where he was about anti-Semitism, where he was a Jew that got beaten to death for being Jewish. But he's he's this wonderful kind of warm, lovable little guy, and he was the original star of Guys and Dolls, um, and uh, and Robert Alda. Alan Alda's father was the original okay. Sky Masterson. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, uh, you know, but, wow. um, you know, there was something that really worked in the stage production. And then when they translated the movie, there, there, were, there were definitely some screw-ups. Yeah. And I think number one is Frank Sinatra is badly cast. He doesn't get the laughs out of Nathan Detroit that, that you say a Nathan Lane or a Tim Doyle would have gotten. Uh, in the role, but um, <laughs> Could imagine. but you know, but it's but I mean, it, it, I would. It's worth a look. It's it's it might give you a better sense of why people like it so much, because it's um, it's very fun and bouncy. It's a bouncy show. You know, the stakes of the story. It's just it's just a love story. It's like, will these people make it work? You know, and uh, you know, a guy makes a bet that he can take a girl away overnight to Havana. You know, basically he's betting that it's one, it's like one of those again one of those comedies from the eighties where a guy's making a bet with his friend whether he can fuck somebody before prom. You know? yeah. <laughs> the universal story. It's a universal story, but this was the 1950s version is that Frank Sinatra bets, uh, or uh, uh, Marlon Brando bets Frank Sinatra that he can take Gene Simmons to H uh, Havana for an overnight trip. Yeah. You know, now that's that's the female Gene Simmons with a J. Yeah, not, not, not the Kiss kid. lead singer for all the heavy metal fans yeah. out there. I know you got excited at hearing that name. No, that by the way would be a way to revise the, the show. Would be yeah. to have somebody take Gene Simmons to Havana uh, yeah. overnight uh, from yeah, Kiss. That would be a very different and, then, and fall in love with Gene Simmons. That would be an extremely different path for the story to yeah. take for Marlon Brando to fall in love with the lead singer from Kiss.
in our um sorry in our Michael Cerverus interview, I asked him if um what musical could be done in a country and western style, and just off the top of my head, I I said this, and his reaction was, yeah, that that could work. So, do you think it could work in sort of a a bluegrass style? Yeah, or yeah. Set it in the wild west, change the humor a little bit. Yeah, no, look, yeah. I mean, the music would be adaptable. I think. I mean, yeah. you know. Uh, Again, these are these are pretty songs. Your eyes are the eyes of a woman in love, and oh how they, sl- you know. I mean, yeah, you know, these are pretty songs. Yeah, there's a great song in there that that Sky Masterson sings. That's not in the movie. Um, My time of day is the dark time. A couple of deals before dawn, when the street belongs to the cop and the janitor with a mop. I mean, it's this whole little ode to what it feels like late at night when you're you know, walking down a city street and yeah. you know, the, the smell of the rainwashed pavement comes up clean and fresh and cold and the street lamp light <laughs> fills the gutter with gold. You know, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, anybody who's ever come home drunk from a bar and, and walked, you know, uh, walked uh, down the street has, has had that feeling, that, that wonderful feeling, that, that 3 a.m. feeling, you know? Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot in the show and that, that yeah. could be successfully mined. And of course they made the movie and they cut that song out because, you know, because Hollywood is like yeah. stupid. All, you know, reflexively stupid. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've complained about that a fair bit. And, and, you know, they always cut out the word song. They, you know, they did Into the Woods, that movie of Into the Woods. There's that wonderful song that the baker has that he sings with his father. No more questions, no more quests. It's the best song in the show. And, and I wouldn't have even minded James Corden singing it. And they cut it out. I, I don't get it. And it's not, and I, and I, and I, and I read an interview. They didn't, even, they didn't even shoot it. It's not like it got cut out for time. You know, no. the director's like, eh, pass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm still complaining about um, "Hello Dolly," cutting "Penny in My Pocket." Yeah, it's a great song. It's a great. Song. It's one of the best songs in the whole thing, and it's not in the show. It's ridiculous. Never gonna hear end of this one. No, in, instead they instead Gene Kelly, who directed it, had to turn every musical number into a 20 minute, you know, spectacular. You know, yeah. it's just like he he went the, that that thing got so bloated and overblown. You know, it was it was you know in the aftermath of Oliver, um, everybody decided that brought you know that musical films had to be three and a half hours long, and so <laughs> they started making these ridiculously overly inflated versions of these Broadway musicals. And Hello Dolly was the apex of that. You know, they cut out a bunch mm. of songs in order to turn every musical number into literally a stadium full of people singing and dancing in, uh, in, in full vigor for fifteen or twenty minutes. And, um, you know, and the story at every juncture, every time a song starts, the story stops, you know, comes to a grinding halt. Yes. And you, you, you literally, yeah. you want to get up and ha- go make a sandwich and then come back uh, and let the thing go on. People grow up with these musicals and love them. And so yeah. they don't, they, you know, they don't have the same profit impulse or, or like craven impulses that the Hollywood people do when they take a musical, you know? I mean, Evan yeah. Hansen is, a, it was a wonderful show on Broadway. I think the movie's, the movie has a stink to it that uh, it hasn't come out yet, but the movie has a, already has kind of a, you know, I, I can smell burning tires. I, something is, yeah. something is a little off, you know. Can you smell the nepotism, can you? Well, yes. I mean, but he's, that kid is, that kid was good on Broadway. I mean, the yeah. difference is you can have a 30 year old guy playing a high school student on Broadway, you know, yeah. 
but, but not in a movie. you know, but you, to put you put him in a musical, um, you know, I mean, a movie is is going to be a little tricky, you know. And and my friend Caitlin mm. Deaver is in that. She's a you know the the actress. She was on um, the Tim Allen show I, that I ran for three years, and she's yeah. she's a wonderful actress and and very talented singer. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what she does with it. But yeah, but Ben is a little long in tooth to play the high school student in that show, yeah. and. And also, it's a it's a weird show. I mean, it worked as a as a, a, a as a piece of theater. I think it's yeah. going to be problematic as a movie because he's a lying sack of shit through the whole thing. And <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is this guy misrepresenting himself in order to get with a girl. So yeah. it's it's we're back to that, and uh, and which is not an <laughs> I mean, which again would have been an acceptable theme in the 1950s or the 1980s. Mm -hmm. But I, I have a feeling the audiences are going to go, "What the fuck?" when they see this thing uh, yeah. uh, in their in their local cinemas. Um, just uh, on the story, though, I was quite disappointed that the dolls didn't come to life and kill the guys. <laughs> uh, I was waiting for that the whole time. I needed more Chucky. Now, just to uh, connect musicals and sitcoms, so far we've had the Friends parody musical and Gilligan's Island parody musical and a very Brady musical and Happy Days a musical and soon we got The Nanny. So which sitcom do you pray never, ever gets the musical treatment? Well, there's so many bad music. I mean, there's so many bad sitcoms. Uh, and I would mm -hmm. hate to... I, I, the truth is I hate to shit on any of them because I probably every bad sitcom... I, I'm familiar with one of my friends worked on, so I'm, yep. I'm I'm probably reluctant to go and point at something and say, ah, that one's a piece of shit, you know. Yep. Uh, you I, are on the torture chamber. Yeah, so. <laughs> you know, it would be uh, that would be very painful. But I would I would also think that a lot of uh, a lot of um, comedy shows wouldn't lend themselves necessarily to be musicals, because yeah. by by nature musicals have a heightened energy. They have. You know, the, I mean, the, the rationale in a musical for the singing is that, you know, the, the person's excitement has gotten to a level where mere words won't even express it anymore. They have to you know, burst with song, you know, and uh, when you have a low key musical like, I mean, I'm sorry, a low key comedy show like whatever, like Frasier or something or, you know, where people are kind of sitting around making jokes about wine and opera. And some of those people would be very skilled. I think they, they love to sing. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, the, the stars of that show would, would love to sing, but I, I'm not sure it'd be right. You know, you, there's there's something very nice and low key about certain comedies that I don't think would lend themselves to being musicalized. Sondheim could do a Frasier musical. Yeah, well, he could do anything. He could do no wrong. Yeah, that's true. I guess he's officially retired now. I uh, I guess he's officially retired now. I don't think he's working on anything anymore. No, he's 91. I know. It makes me sad though because he, um, you know, he had he had a, a a remarkable career and you know was a was a great force in uh, in musical theater and, and in terms of making musical theater more sophisticated more adult g'day listeners aaron here while you're topping up your coffees did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time go to www thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, 
the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Crack, thud, the human trips over the uneven ground as the Twanimal blows out the lantern. Watch your step, Kapoor says a little too late. Why did you put the light out? Ollie Kosh, an open flame near hay bales? And here I thought you were smart, sir. Toniston agrees with how silly he must have sounded. What are we doing out here? The boy asks as they blindly walk around the side of the house, where they're greeted by giant shadows rising up above them. Unable to properly see in the pitch black darkness, Toniston presumes they are the three hay bales. He looks around. The plains are vast and the spotlights out in the distance, now a purple colour, seem to be too far away to bring any real light to them. They do, however, look very pretty dancing on the rippling oceanic sky. Stand back, the silhouetted cub paw warns with his gruff but friendly voice, clearly able to see in the darkness better than the human who had constantly refused to eat his carrots. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Uh, but speaking of sitcoms, you've, you've worked in both styles, sort of single cam and, and multicam. Do you have a preference for what you prefer to work with or either producing or writing? Yeah, I mean, I think I prefer single cam uh, at this yeah. point. They're, the truth is the, there's nothing harder than doing a multicam. I mean, they're very, very hard to do well. They're, they're, they're easy to do badly, but they're hard to do well because you have, you know, you have the stylistic burden of being very funny you know, and, and, you know, and your jokes are hanging out there in front of a live audience, you know, despite yeah. all of the, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, joshing around about sitcoms, about how much we sweeten the laugh tracks and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the truth is, on the shows I've worked on, that's just never been the case. You know, usually what you end up doing is the, the, the multicam shows, the live audience shows, usually you yeah. have to actually edit down the laughs because the live audience knows it's there to contribute and they overdo it. So uh -huh, yeah. something that's a very mild smile at home might get, you know, an eight second laugh break on, on, on a sitcom. And in the editing room, you're like, chop that out, just get rid of it, you know, because you have to try to move the story along. And it's very unnatural. I mean, the difference between a multicam and a single cam is the difference between a play and a movie. I mean, a, a single, you know, a multicam is like a little play, you know, and it has all the artificiality of that. When you, when you step outside the, you know, the house, uh, you know, and they're in their backyard and they're making a bar, they're having a barbecue or something, you know, you can see the painted backdrop and the, and the fake trees behind them. You, you know, it's, it looks like a play, you know, whereas in a single cam show, you, you treat it like a movie. There's a lot more of those uh, genre elements. You go, you actually go outdoors to shoot outdoor scenes generally, you know, and that kind of thing. So, and, and, and single camera shows are more kinetic. There's a little more freedom, but, I guess more importantly, there are also more of the style now. I mean, when I started in the 90s, multicams were, you know, if, you know, I mean, the big shows were Seinfeld and Frasier and, you know, and, and, and all these shows were, uh, and, you know, Friends and whatever, they were, they were multicams. Those were the hot shows. Those were the shows that won Emmy Awards every year. And that's, and then somewhere in the mid 90s or the late 90s, that stopped and people started looking down their nose at multicams. So yeah. as, as a creative person, I, I certainly don't want to, I don't want to put my energy into um, 
shows that either aren't going to get scheduled because they're multicams or that the audience is going to look at with disdain because they've been somehow been educated to think the multicams are stupid, that they're sort of brain dead. But when you do them really well, it's, it's you know, there's nothing better. Well, do I, I, you say, um, Stu, I think it is as an overabundance, uh, but just on the audience overdoing it um, and your reputation as being sitcom Viagra, does that mean that every episode is a standing ovation? You know, I mean, look, I mean, I, look, I've worked on some shows. You know, I've worked on some shows that weren't, that I didn't think were great, but you, the audience really, you know, it adds an energy to the thing and they really do come to appreciate it. So, I mean, a lot of the time they're just so super excited because they're in the same room with some, you know, some, their TV friends. So, you know, like the last multicam, the last multicam I did was uh, a show with Tim Allen. He's the, uh, I ran that, sh his show for three years, a show he did called uh, Last Man Standing. And people were so thrilled just to be in the presence of Tim Allen that he could, he, he could barely walk in and, and, you know, and, and, and crack a line and they would be, they would fall down shitting themselves. They'd be laughing so hard. Um, and, and it is a temptation to be lazy because, you know, when, uh, uh, you, you know, there's a, there's a temptation to, to uh, not work hard if, if, the, if the people can get the easy laughs, you know, they can yeah. get the cheap laughs. So, um, you know, you have to keep yourself honest. But I do like about the fact is there's nothing, there's no more educational moment than when a joke you think is gonna play in front of the audience falls flat. You know, there's so much to look at there. Uh, and, um, and, and you don't get that kind of thing when you're shooting a single camera show. You can, you can tell yourself that all the funny ideas you have in your single camera script are brilliant and it'll never really be tested because you'll never have to hear the audience not laugh at them. Um, now, obviously I mentioned dinosaurs, um, which I will forever praise. And I know it's, it's obviously been a topic about this final episode that wasn't the final episode, obviously, because then they played the four or five episodes afterwards as a, a quote unquote coda. However, I will forever keep that final episode that where basically all the characters are going to die. We know what happens to the dinosaurs. It's like watching the Titanic and, and being surprised at the end of it. Like what the, f where the hell have you been for the past hundred years? I think people were surprised at the yeah. Oh, look, you know, I remember it. It's always stood out as a kid. Um, and I don't know why, but I guess, and I was always excited by it. I don't know why, not, not because they were going to die, but because you guys went there, it wasn't, you guys weren't spe uh, spoon feeding me as a child. And I even noticed that the baby, the annoying one, wasn't in a lot of the latest seasons. Cause you guys, I could tell, I, even now watching it as an adult, I can tell you guys probably didn't like the, the response that the, the public had and the studio had to, Put the baby in everything that sort of shows because he's been sidelined uh thank you for that by the way so in terms of um my question it obviously you guys went i, I as i've heard that you went down to the set what was that like the first time when you walk into this beautiful physical location that they've made like this was i still today i marvel at the the design behind it all um, what was that like? You know, just your first job. It was my first, uh, you know, pro professional showbiz writing job. Um, and so I didn't have anything to compare it to, but, and it was, it spoiled me for everything else because production was so lavish on that show. Yeah. And I had also the privilege of sort of being there from the beginning. I mean, uh, Michael Jacobs and Bob Young had written the pilot and the show because of its, because it was so expensive, it went straight to series. They had an order for 12 episodes. So he hired his writing staff. So 
we were all there. The writers were all there while the sets were being put up. So, you know, on my way to the car every night, I would kind of cruise by and watch them building this thing. First, they yeah. put up this platform on the stage, on stage 10 at Radford Studios <laughs> they built, uh, the, the, to put the whole thing four feet up off the ground uh, for the puppeteers. And then they started assembling this framework that was the house and they sprayed it with this foam stuff that made it look like rock. And I mean, we watched it progress over a period of time. And we, you know, and we were in the meetings. I mean, Michael Jacobs, who ran that show, you know, he had the writers basically sitting on two couches in his office and we watched the whole thing sort of come together. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Kirk Thatcher was involved as a writer and, and a, a designer on the show. So, you know, yeah. we would sit there and they would bring in drawings of what the characters were gonna look like and drawings of what the sets were gonna look like and the props and what, and we would discuss and we'd say, no, this would be funnier if it was more like this or maybe it should be this. And, you know, even as a baby writer on that show, um, you know, I was permitted to some extent to have opinions. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a, a, it was a great big show to be involved in as my first project in television. I'm so much happier that I did that instead of working on Full House or something, you know, which would have been a much more conventional kind of sitcom experience. So it was, it was an insanely expensive show to produce and all this technology. And I met all these, I met some amazingly talented writers. And the, the, the funny part is after 30 years, three or four of those writers are still among my best friends. I mean, Kirk yeah. Thatcher, Rob Eulen, Victor Fresco, you know, these are, these are people that I socialize with. And, you know, I've, I've worked with all, and they were writers that I met on the Dinosaur Show. So, and I still see fairly regularly. So, um, yeah, it was a fundamental uh, uh, experience. Were, were those suits problematic? Because obviously they were computerized or mechanical. Yeah. They were mechanical and, yeah. and, and like anything mechanical, I mean, it, it, they had problems, you know, yeah. and, and the poor people, the guys who were in those suits. I mean, the, Bill Beretta, who was inside the Earl costume, I mean, that mm -hmm. poor guy, you know, he, you know, he carried, because you have to picture, the, they, they have this suit on and then they have this 40 pound computer resting on top of their head with this yeah. automated face that opened the eyes moved and the, and the mouth moved and, and, a, and a puppeteer off screen was operating it, making the, the lip flaps and the facial expressions and stuff. And the guy inside is walking around waving his arms and having to move across the <laughs> and then we And then of course, if you look at almost every one of my episodes, I wrote a musical number. You know, so, so um, you're talking about music. I'm pretty sure um, Earl sings, I feel pretty or I enjoy being a girl. I'm pretty sure at one time, uh, you know, it's a very musical, various musical songs. Uh, and, you know, and I, I would always have them singing and dancing. And even on episodes that didn't have my actual name on it as a writer, I would be the one who would come in and, and pitch. I think they should sing and dance here. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you know, and does not surprise me. And these wonderful actors, <laughs> I mean, these wonderful suit actors, they yeah. killed themselves to give us what we asked for. It was hell inside those suits. You know, yeah. uh, he had to just he he had to pound carbohydrates like an ap athlete, just wait on you know, keep his strength up for a twelve-hour day of shooting in that costume. And I watched uh, the kid who played Robbie, the the young man who was in the Robbie costume. I saw him. I saw him throw up inside his costume. Oh God! <laughs> and the guy inside got sick, and he vomited inside his costume. And had to take off the head and get him out of it and clean the whole thing out. And I think you know he created job security that day. Did that end up on the Christmas reel? Uh, I'm well. I'm. What was funny about it is you just heard him, 
And then, and, and you, and you basically saw him kind of going, oh, oh, you know. You, but you know, in the meanwhile, the face yeah. was still operating. And then they had took it off, and then there was a mess. <laughs> Not quite sure how much of it ended up actually getting shot. But uh, yeah, Leaf, uh, Leaf uh, Tilden, who was inside that suit, also one of the uh, one of the Ninja Turtles. I mean, yeah. two of the two of our uh, regular people were also Ninja Turtles because it was the same Henson technology. It was the same people. This was just the next level of that. The origin of the dinosaur show was Henson had created this technology and he didn't have anything to do with it. And, yeah. uh, and Disney was trying to buy the Henson company and he pitched that idea of, can we do dinosaurs using these kind of suits? And then he, uh, while they were negotiating all of that and the purchase of the company, he died. And, uh, and in the chaotic aftermath of his death, this show became born with all these other people saying what Jim would have wanted, you know? And, yeah. uh, and and ultimately we ended up with something that was pretty good, but um, you know it was a it was kind of a crazy time. Now again, I never met Jim. I was I was I was brought in a year after his disappearance, but I was you know I was there for uh, for for all three years of of the dinosaur show. I stuck it out to the end. My friends Rob and Victor both moved on to other jobs, but I decided mm -hmm. to stick it out <laughs> because yeah. I loved the job so much, and I also figured I'd never work again. Okay, we'll speak maybe after the French episode because I would like to know what happened in that episode. That are we meant to be learning a message about a moral lesson about racism or something? And in the end of it, not we didn't learn anything. In the the Frenchman was killed off or it was eaten or something like that. I I couldn't stop laughing because I thought no, that's not meant. This is not how TV is meant to go. <laughs> So what was going through your mind, seriously? <laughs> What's wrong with your lot? I don't remember that one very clearly. That one, I believe, was written by Dave Kaplan and Brian LePan. And yeah. I'm sure I was there for the rewrite. But what, would, what you do as a writer on these shows is they send you off to write a draft. And then on most shows, in those days anyway, <laughs> then you had sort of a producer's responsibility. And you would be tracking that show through production. So. I would be on stage for the episodes that had my name on it, and I would yeah. be away from the writer's room when some other thing was conceived. So I can't tell you a lot about the French, uh, the yeah. French bird episode, other than the exchange student episode, uh, other than I remember a million Jerry Lewis jokes and uh, yep. and and uh, <laughs> and some of that. But yes, the bird gets eaten by somebody at the end or whatever. Yeah, the baby. Oh, the baby ba eats the bird. Ba sure. Baby eats the bird, and and I'm thinking like, where's the moral lesson? <laughs> Well, that that one episode would not go down well today. Well, what, what, but what was great about the show, and compared to almost the rest, again, yeah, you know, this did not bear out in the rest of my television career. Is that because it was thought of as a children's show, um, the people at the network were kind of hands off. They didn't uh, after the first handful of episodes, we didn't get a lot of notes and then let a lot of interference. They weren't paying that much attention to what we were doing, and yeah. so. You know, we did we did whatever we wanted, and as you suggest, you know, we got fed up with the baby and having to service the baby and having the baby be the center of everything. So we would we would do a certain amount of that, but more and more we did episodes that were basically just you know a big political satire, uh, yeah. you know, or and and make the sort of statements that we wanted to make about American politics at the time. Uh, and 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 you know, when people talk about that final episode, but I mean. We wanted to make the statement, you know, the uh, we, that industry was destroying the planet. You know, we wanted to say that on the show, and we said it a half dozen different ways in, in other episodes. But yeah. um, 
you know, it was important to us in 1992 or three or whatever it was to, you know, to alert people to the dangers of climate change. And, um, you know, and thank, thank God we had the impact we did and we turned everything around. Yeah, that problem, that problem, got late, you know, but it, it, you talk about the timeliness of the show, but, and that's because, you know, the problems that we were pointing to on that show, the things we were satirizing, you know, they're still, still here. They haven't gone away. Yeah. No, it's about, now just on, on the baby. Um, I think what the problem is, is not, not its presence or its voice it's the catchphrases not the yeah right that's it because if uh, i noticed in especially in the first maybe season and a half the baby's responses were absolute smart ass but really really funny mm-hmm. like there was some real clever lines that came out of the baby's mouth and that sort of faded away as you guys put the baby in the background a bit more um and, and had less of a focus on him because whenever, you know, you mention the show to people and they, they're going to mention baby Sinclair and they're going to say, not the mama or, um, gotta love me. But I have to say to everyone that that baby is a hell of a lot more in those first, that first season, especially, or the first, maybe 20 episodes, I think, um, there's just little lines here and there. The delivery I thought was, was quite clever and, and cutting, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I I can completely uh, I can completely picture that we probably got lazy with the baby because we were yeah. so sort of disinterested in it. I mean, yeah. you're not going to be able to use. I, I was very focused on doing the the sort of uh, social and political satire stuff. So yeah. uh, and that was the stuff that got me excited. So I you know I did an episode called Green Card, which was about immigration and about sort of ra- the, the the racism of the of the two-legged dinosaurs versus the four-legged dinosaurs. And they're building a wall, you know, to keep the four-legged dinosaurs on their side of the swamp and all this stuff. I mean, you know, uh, that was much more interesting to me. And the baby didn't have a role in that. You know, you could have the baby go, ah, whoa, bad or something. But, you know, you couldn't, he, he could not be part of the intelligent discussion of, uh, you know, of um, these, these kinds of issues. Uh, so, yeah, I was probably pretty disinterested in, in servicing the baby. But then I also wrote an episode, there was an episode called The Terrible Twos, which was just a straight out parody of The Exorcist, you know, which was all about the baby being yeah. awful and spitting up green stuff and, and his head spinning around and, and they have to call out an exorcist, you know, because he turned two and babies are notoriously difficult during their second year. So, uh, you know, yeah, I was willing to go there once in a while and have just have some fun with the baby. But the stuff that really excited me the most was when we were, you know, punching hard at the politics of the time. Uh, yeah. you know, when we, we took on the Gulf War, we had a two-part Gulf War episode where they were, you know, fighting with the four-legged dinosaurs over their pistachio nuts, you know, <laughs> and that, uh, that kind of stuff. So we were friends, uh, Rob, especially Rob Bulin went to Harvard and was friends with all the Simpsons writers. You know, he had come up through yep. the Harvard Lampoon with some of these guys. And so we had a, a feeling of competitiveness with the guys who were doing the Simpsons at the time. And they and we were envious of the freedom they had to tackle adult topics and, uh, and, and you know, through the, their family stories. So yep. that was the orientation that uh, some of the writers on the staff were really focused on. Now you bring up the the writers' room. Um, you know, if, would you say that that writers' room process um, can only really be accepted in the realm of television, uh, especially sitcoms, maybe even drama? 
uh, as opposed to film or theatre or something which when you hear written by committee, it seems to be a bad thing. You know, you hear a song, it was written by committee, a movie, it was written by committee. Would, would you agree that perhaps in, in sitcoms or in television that that really seems to be the only place that that written by committee is accepted? Well, look, it's a peculiarity of the American television system because, you know, in network television, which basically barely exists anymore. I mean, the, the, the network television business that I came up in is, all, is on life support at this point. You know, mm-hmm. the, the traditional networks. But, but what made those shows, made that distinct, and I think distinct from just about anywhere else in the world, is a season would be 22 or 24 episodes. You had to, during the course of 10 months, you know, you had to produce, or, you know, nine months, nine and a half months, produce 22 or 24, sometimes 26 episodes of a show, a successful show. And mm-hmm. so in order to be that productive, you need a lot of ideas bouncing off the walls. You know, you just need a lot of people throwing in ideas. You know, uh, you've got to have, it becomes a factory where you are at all times, you know, servicing, you know, servicing the show that's shooting on the stage, you're planning the one that's going to shoot the week after that. You're working on an outline for the one that's going to shoot after that. You're pitching the uh, idea to the network for the one that's going to shoot after that. And then, and you're, and you're doing post-production on the two that shot last week and the week before, you know, and then it's sounding. So you've got like eight or 10 episodes at a time, you know, in the, in the flow of assembly. And um, the, the writer's room, the big writer's room is very helpful in that process. But, you know, if you're doing six or eight episodes for Netflix or something, you don't need, you know, you don't need the, the big writer's room for that. Um, but, 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 but what I do think is it's also much more useful in comedy than it is in drama. I mean, because, you know, I have, I have limited flavors of comedy in me that I can, that I come up with in a writer's room. I have, I have some tricks up my sleeve. I have some, some, some places that I go based on my life and my background. But what's great is to be in a room with other complimentary writers, people who fill in your voids, who have, yeah. who have wonderful ideas. So every show that I've run and, and, and most of the comedy shows that I've worked on, you know, you, you find yourself in a room and you, have, and you come to a thing where that's not that funny and somebody else says something 10 times funnier and you say, cut out my thing, put that thing in. That's the thing that needs to go here. And, and that's yeah. where the collaboration becomes so valuable when you're, when you're trying hard to be funny. If you're doing Grey's Anatomy or something and, and all you really have to figure out, I mean, which again, I don't mean to denigrate you know, drama shows, but, but they don't have that, you know, they don't have that added level of difficulty, which is having to tell a story and be funny at the same time. You know, yeah. uh, all they have, and, and those shows tend to be much more formulaic, those kind of um, genre, cop shows, lawyer shows, doctor shows, you know, you know that the little girl with cancer is going to have cancer and that's going to be sad and tug at your heartstrings. You know that the, the two doctors who are sleeping together are going to get caught and his girlfriend or his wife or whatever, you know, I mean, all that bullshit soap opera stuff, those that those shows live and die for. Um, in a comedy show, everything, every plot moment ha- has to be framed as something inherently comic or should be framed as something inherently comic. And then the dialogue has to have comedy in it. And, and so for that, the collaboration is really useful, especially again, if you have a big order where you have to do, you know, where you have to do a bunch of them. We did 23 episodes of The Kids Are All Right and it almost killed me, you know, just to, to get those out because I was working 20 hours a day on that show. But 
it would and and but I, the only way I was able to maintain the level of quality on it was that I had a great writing staff and they and they brought when my when my brain was fried they brought me good ideas. That's it. Surround yourself with uh, like random people that compliment your talent, even if they don't have the same voice. Like that's no, that's yeah. better. That's better. And a lot of the time, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be working with a writer and, and somebody and somebody will say, oh, I hate that guy. I can't stand that guy or this this woman I couldn't <laughs> stand. She was terrible or whatever. And a, a lot of the time it's sort of like, well, I don't maybe like them that much as a person, but they bring an energy to the show that I would never yeah. have. Yeah. And, you know, and and I don't mind somebody who <laughs> is going to disagree with me and argue with me a little bit because they're going to force me to be you know, to defend my ideas and to make them better. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, that's a very good lesson for people out there that. I'm a creature of the writer's room. I mean, I've spent yeah. bulk of my adult life, you know, in those rooms. And uh, the fact that I haven't been working in a writer's room over the last year, um, you know, drives me crazy. That's all right. Neither have I, Tim. <laughs> Neither have I. Uh, but I've spent my whole adult life dreaming of getting into a writer's room one day. Well, do, what do you uh, do in Australia? What? How is uh, Australian television produced? Um, well, we don't really have sitcoms. It's all fucking reality TV. And every now and then there'll be a quirky Aussie comedy drama that'll be an hour long, you know, primetime drama. But our industry is pretty much the same as America. It's all on cable or on streaming. All the prestige stuff is all cable. I'm so. trying to think of us. I mean, obviously, obviously, the Australian talent, the uh, the actors are uh, are over in the United States. They're they're yep. here. You know, we we just because there's nothing here. Yeah. Well, they they immediately yes they they get a little bit of notoriety and then they head to L.A. But yep. um, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Australian shows that have emigrated. Um, there, there's that guy who dresses up like a girl and uh, like Sunny Vale High or what was it? Let's, Sunny, oh, um, some, uh, Summer Heights Summer High. High Chris Lilly. That yeah. guy. He's, yeah. But, he's, but he's kind of in trouble now, isn't he? I mean, because he also yep. does like blackface and stuff. I, I look back now at some of those shows that he did and I'm kind of going, ah, you know? Yeah. I mean, that private school girl one was just great. Uh, yeah, Jermaine. Yeah, Jermaine. She, that was great, but then, but then he did the, but then he did a couple of ones where he literally like I don't know, he played like uh, boys from Samoa or someplace. I for, yeah, uh, Jonah from Tonga. Yeah, yeah, Tonga. That's right, the kid from Tonga. And it's like, what the hell? And it was popular at the time. It was massively popular with a lot of Maoris and Islanders. So, but that's the only thing that I've seen uh, from Australia in the sitcom form i remember there was a there there was a show about a girl yeah. in tasmania or something i think that i watched once people sometimes send me foreign formats um yeah. you know uh they send me foreign formats to say can you adapt this for american television and stuff but i haven't seen a lot from australia yeah a lot yeah. of time i get something like from south africa or israel or or you yeah. know whatever but not so much from australia you don't feel that you have a um a vibrant television writing culture there not anymore it's, it just seems strange yeah. You know, doesn't uh, whatever Coca-Cola want to sell uh, ads on television? No, we haven't had a, an, a studio sitcom in years, I don't think. Not a multicam live studio audience. Well, it seems very strange. The last one was 2000, I, I mean, think. But you buy our stuff. Yeah. 
which funnily enough, yeah, that show, the last one we had was Sit Down, Shut Up, got bought by Fox and they turned it into an animated series. And neither neither series lasted. The, the Australian one didn't last and the American one didn't last. So what was the point? Yeah, well, believe me, there's more and more of that. And that's what network television here is going to become. It's going to become sports and reality, ultimately. And I think that the golden days of, of doing 24 episodes of a, of a new show are probably going away, uh, you know, uh, because the economics are such that, you know, they whatever they don't want to do it and then and then and a place like netflix because they're you know they they don't they don't need a hundred episodes of your show you know to, to they just want to make a big splash the first season or two in order to draw in subscribers and so you know yeah my friend victor, victor did a show for netflix called uh, the santa clarita diet about where drew barrymore played a zombie you know, and they they did like two seasons, three seasons of it, and then they pulled the plug. You know, and it wasn't sort of that they didn't like it and it wasn't doing well. It was like they got enough, they and they got the bang out of it that they wanted, which was you know to they want to be able to announce you know every week that they've got some new show that 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 might trick somebody into uh, signing up for Netflix. So it's it's different. I mean, we for thirty years we were working on shows trying to get to like you know hundred episodes so that we could then get the reruns that they would show you know the syndication month. Uh, and you needed enough to sort of run the show five days a week, you know, at, at, at uh, 10 in the morning uh, in order to make that work. But that model is disappearing. Well, obviously, um, one that you worked on in the second season made it to 5,000 episodes, I believe. Well, the Big Bang Theory. Big Bang, yeah. They did a couple of them. Um, well, I've never seen it. Sorry. It's all right. Big Bang, Big Bang wasn't my favorite experience. But, uh, but it, it was a very well-liked uh, show. And you want to talk about a show where the audience really came to play. I mean, the fans of that show, the, because it was a show about sort of nerds, uh, PhD, you know, um, uh, what well, are actually postdoc guys working at like a Caltech type school, you know, yeah. and they were very immersed in sort of nerd culture in terms of like, uh, you know, comic books and superheroes and that kind of stuff. At the same time, they were also, you know, scientists and, yeah. and completely backward as far as women goes. So. Um, the, the nerds would come to that tape, those tapings, and they would, they would, you know, they would piss themselves laughing over the smallest, smallest things. And I would yeah. get impatient with the show sometimes because I felt like we were, we were being lazy. <laughs> I mean, just the, just the act of having, there was sort of a pandering. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were the, the it was all yeah. framed around the central character of Sheldon, who, who is, uh, who is a kind of an Asperger's type. You know, I don't think it was ever said explicitly, but that was the, the idea. He was a guy with very limited emotional range and ability to understand things, but he was a genius when it came to science. So, you know, the premise of the show was always setting up uh, Sheldon in an awkward situation where he could be overly analytical like Mr. Spock, you know, and, and make everything br brutally difficult for his other friends. And uh, so, and, and just week after week, it was just sort of that. And yes, the, you want to talk about a show that didn't have a lot of substance, you know, or point that that show, it really was just for, um, for, for goofs. Yes. But again, the, the, the kids from Caltech would come out to, in, in a bus to see it and they would look and, and they would make yes. And, and there were lots of inside jokes. He, he would have a dry erase board in his office in, in his in the middle of their living room and there'd be a different formula on it every week. And the Caltech kids would love that because they'd be all very excited about the, the scientific formula on the board. 
Uh, yeah. So it was, yes, it was, it was nerd comedy, but a massively successful show. Yeah. Uh, now, okay, I want to uh, just bring up the kids are all right because I've only got two more questions. So there was a, a scene in one of the episodes in the first 10 or so uh, where the mum character is ironing aluminium foil. Now, this reminds me of my dad, who I once caught washing out drinking straws in the sink because sure. he thought he might save some money. Now, was this something your parents did? Yes, my mother definitely did. That. Oh, we we had the same parents. <laughs> yeah, no, no. She saved the she saved the what we call aluminum foil. Uh, she 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 saved the aluminum foil, and she also would reuse the um, the little plastic baggies, the sandwich baggies we used for our school lunches. She would rinse those out and reuse those. Should use it for a pot, would she? <laughs> no, not for a pot. She would give you you she would give it to you for your sandwich the next day. You know, we again we had ten, there were ten of us in our family, and uh, yep. the, and the the sense always was that uh, we were on the verge of being sent uh, out into the street to live in the trees. At any given mm -hmm. moment, it could happen. So uh, there was a lot of uh, penny pinching going on in that household. Well, obviously, it's a, a semi autobiographical. So what sort of ratio are we looking at here, and what sort of things from your real life did you draw well, out? Look, mo almost all of the specifics of the show are real. You know, I mean, all the specific moments and specific references and things that happened, they happened in some way. They just didn't quite happen in, you know, in, in the that way, way that they've yeah. done in the show. They've been sort of reorganized. And, um, and they didn't necessarily happen with the people that they happened with in the show. Yeah. You know, I have uh, seven brothers, but the, my brothers, you know, I, I juggled around some of their personality elements a little bit because they didn't, you know, sign up to be uh, television characters and I wanted to spare them some of that. So I changed their names yep. and, uh, and fiddled with that a bit. But, but almost everything you could point to in an episode was based on something real that that happened in my life or or somebody close to me last point i'm up to you uh, the youngest brother was rolling around in dog shit because um frank wants to get paid now obviously writers i know what it's like being a writer myself you're always thinking of ideas looking back on your illustrious career what has been what you would say now looking back in retrospect your worst pilot or sitcom idea that you've had so far that you would look at and go, oh my God, Tim, what were you thinking? Oh, well, some, I mean, something that originated with me, not a job that I worked on where it was somebody Yes, okay. yes. Um, I did some, I've written some pretty weak sitcoms over the years. I worked on a yeah. script. I had, a, I, I had a, a script that I was writing, trying to write for Sally Field um, years ago, maybe 15, uh, maybe 20 years ago, Sally Field wanted to do a sitcom. And we had a meeting and I had this story about a woman whose husband dies and she and she's left sort of penniless and she has to sort of restart her life and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote this thing and wrote this thing and wrote it around in circles a hundred different ways. And it, it never got funny and it never got particularly interesting. And at a certain point, Sally basically just like I remember, I think I saved the note. She wrote me a note saying, Tim, just walk away. Let's just not do this. You know, she had to basically, she had to basically tell me that she was losing interest, that there wasn't anything here, that it, we started off with a lot of bright promise, but the that the show just, it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, I've been involved in things that were like colossal belly flops. I wrote a pilot about, uh, called The Oog Show, about a family of cave people, you know, many, many years. And this was a, a wonderful belly flop. You know, I wrote it for Fox and Joe Flaherty played the father, the caveman, and, and his grandpa was played by an orangutan. We literally had an orangutan. Thing, uh, who came in 
<laughs> a trained orangutan that was that was grandpa uh, that that lived with them. And and it, there was a lot of big swings in that show. It was very silly, and it actually had a lot of merit. But you know, nobody ever lost their job at a network for not picking up the caveman show. You know, that's yeah. the kind of thing that's. That's the kind of decision that nobody ever has to explain to their bosses. So when, mm -hmm. you, when you write your silly caveman show where, with, with half-naked Joe Flaherty wearing a skin, standing barefoot on a soundstage with a fake cave, there's a very decent chance that the show with the fancy people wearing a tuxedo and, and going for a night on the town, you know, that one gets picked up over the dumb caveman show no matter what the merits are of the script. So I've done a lot of things that are sort of, that are probably embarrassing, but the sad sort of dying with a whimper rather than a bang of my Sally Field project was probably the, you know, yeah. it's probably the, the, the weakest thing that I wrote that uh, anyone ever actually looked at. I wrote a show called The Abraham Lincoln Show. Oh, okay. You know, which was a sitcom set in the Lincoln White House during the Civil War. And, uh, you know, and, and um, and people kept comparing it to Heil, Honey, I'm Home. And, but the, my Lincoln show actually came this close about a dozen times to getting produced and never really, wow. never really happened. Because again, things like that always feel too much like just a sketch. They don't really feel like they have the legs to be a series. Look, that's a lot of sitcoms, I think. No, and you're only gonna do six or seven of them anyway. You know, you might as well do something that's just funny and is a sketch that isn't going to, that, that you don't have to rely on to have big emotional weight to it. You know, uh, yeah. I, mean, I like that kind of thing. I wrote on the Roseanne show, which was very much like a fucking Arthur Miller play half the time. You know, we would go, you know, three minutes without a laugh sometimes on that show. That was another one I grew up with. I've, I've come to the end of my questions. Well, it's nice to meet you. Get the word out about um, Kids Are All Right. I'm glad to hear it's playing in Australia. Yeah. And I would love to see, uh, I'd love to see those viewing numbers come way up in Australia uh, because, the, you know, there's always a chance they'll ask me to do another doesn't yeah i reckon uh reboot that don't reboot dinosaurs yeah, sorry well they're, they're talking about rebooting dinosaurs My i know in cgi and i don't want it yeah, sorry yeah. tim i want it in it puppetry yes in those suits yes how we had it yes i don't need a modernization in cgi because it won't be that show that you guys created back then that is incredibly special there is a reason why there's still articles about it and why so many people were excited when it came on disney plus it was a lot rarer it was never shown on repeats but it made such an impact on us all it well, really that's did great. i'd love to I, I would accept it in any form i would just love to see the yeah. you know all these things live on as long as they can and in, in any form they can well i will fight you on that <laughs> I will, I will debate you to the cows come home to just leave please leave it as it'll be oh, like I, I would i would be very interested to see how well the cg could simulate the thing yeah i mean i wouldn't want them i, I mean you know we they can do pretty remarkable stuff now i mean the point is they would have to make it as cumbersome as it was they would have to make yeah. it look as shitty as it did you know yeah uh, and if they made it more if they were suddenly if they were suddenly able to turn cartwheels well then uh, no that would be wrong but um, yeah. anyway, I'm just That's kidding. True. But I'm, look, I'm always open to a new adventure. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you and, and great talking to you uh, again. And if there's anything else you need, we can do this again sometime. I'm always uh, very interested in pontificating. Thank you. No worries. Thank you so much. Very good. Bye-bye, guys. Alrighty, that was an episode, and holy moly, was that ever an awesome episode. A mountain of thanks to Tim Doyle for being Tim Doyle and joining us not once but twice. And a fun fact, uh, in the first recording that we had, Tim and I actually realised that we have been credited together on a project 
in the past. And then when I had a look at that project, it turns out we're actually only a few names away from each other in those credits. Uh, so that was pretty cool. So to think this all started with a pun. The story of my life. Anyways, be sure to follow him on Twitter at Flaked and Formed. That's Flaked as in F-L-A-K-E-D and Formed, F-O-R-M-E-D. Just check out Twitter, all the links below. And also be sure to check out Dinosaurs and the Kids Are Alright on your local Disney Overlord streaming service. Please be sure to like and subscribe us by and read the Doniston Tales. I've been Aaron. That was Evan. We're going to leave you with the next single from friend of the show, the beautiful Lisa Humber, with her latest single, With You. Anyways, you take care, and we shall see you next time. Hooroo! I drink till I can sleep The parts I never show I sleep till I can drink My heart, it breaks so slow With you With you Without you I can't breathe